How do you become a professional director if no one will give you a chance? No, oh, that's such a good question. And I think that's the question that everyone asks every day. Like how, how in the world do you do it? You know, <clears throat> I, two nights ago, I was just having dinner with two filmmaking friends. One was a producer director, the other was a director. We asked ourselves the exact same question. The maddening question of how in the world do you get in, break in, get work. I do think that there are ways to do it. But the first thing, I, I think there's multiple steps. And the first step is to understand that there is no way. There is no path. You know, if you want to be a doctor, if you want to be a lawyer, there is a set A, B, C, D to do it, right? You know, you go to school for X amount of years, you get your residency, you do your entry. You, they have mapped it out for you. That's not like that in film. And I'm often asked, how do you, well, how did you do it? Well, sh or someone will say, should I go do the DGA program and like go up that route? Sure. That there is that way of doing it. You can go do, there are certain, you know, courses that they'll have lined out, like different networks will do it. Like Warner Brothers might have their little internal program and you can go in and study under somebody and work your way up. If that works, great. That is a way. Uh, should you make an indie film? Yes, sure. If you can do it and pull that off and that is a way. <laughs> like, but it's not a guaranteed Wait, that's super important to understand. There's, I, I heard a screenwriter describe it once as, it's like we're all blind men with our hands against a wall trying to find a way into the magic kingdom. And we're all feeling our way along. And one of us will oh, we'll find a crack and we'll slip through. But the problem is the crack closes behind us. So we can't turn around and tell anyone behind us, oh, get in that way. No, that, that was the yours specific weird path in getting in, and that's it. So I think, how do you get in? I think the first step is um, understanding that there really isn't a set path. It's just however you can get to point B, do that. That's so vague. I know that's vague. I'm aware, and it's maddening. Um, I think there's an, a second important step to this. I would say that, do not, the trap that I fall into and a lot of us filmmakers fall into is the, well, how did John get that job? That thing. It's, John has, I've been on sets where I'm watching a director work and I'm like, how in the world did this person land that? Like they have no idea what they're doing. The minute your brain starts to go down that path, especially when you're around your artist friends, and you all start to spiral in this, how in the, why in the world is so-and-so working and I'm not, it is a maddening exercise. It is a exercise in frustration and there is no joy at the end of it and you will never find an answer because it doesn't make sense, you know? Um, I think it's very important to watch your mental attitude when it comes to that kind of thing. And the reason why is because if you start thinking about that kind of thing all the time, you are gonna to start to project a negative kind of energy, you know, and that's the kind of thing people pick up on. You know, if you're interviewing for that gig and you're feeling extremely frustrated that no one's brought you on, it, you may not even talk about it, but it's going to be there. 
if you've allowed your mind to circle around that drain. So I would say immediately, you got to turn that off and stop trying to make sense out of this madness. More practical steps, though, I think that the first thing is you have to generate a lot of work. Now, that's going to sound like, what do you mean? I thought that the answer, I'm asking you, how do I get into a place where I'm generating a lot of work? Yes, in order to generate a lot of work, you kind of have to already do it on your own. But that doesn't mean movies. That doesn't mean you have to be making movies or television shows. Because, little secret, my reel that you can look at, the vast majority of the things on that reel are not movies or television shows. They are other side projects, other little things that look cinematic. They're just not part of any kind of project that you will ever see. Um, and there's really cool ways to do that. Uh, and I had a really big epiphany. And I know last time I was interviewed here, I talked about this where I had been trying to be a filmmaker for a hundred years. You know, I was just struggling and just, and I found that I was angry all the time. Like just, I was so, I was shooting a lot of live corporate events where I'm just literally the camera guy in the middle of the arena, like panning left and panning right by some speaker. Walking back and forth on the stage, giving the annual report on, you know, boring corporate. I'm wearing a suit and tie. I am so far away from being on set where it's exciting and there's explosions and all of this, I am just twisted and angry and it was not a life, it was not an existence that I would ever want to go back to. And I realized one day as I was in the middle of making a training film for, I think it was for like a shipping company, like how to like, you know, package something. It was like as dry as it gets. And then I watched the movie Jurassic Park. And in Jurassic Park, you know, that movie came out when? It was late 90s? Is that safe to say? Somewhere early 2000s, late 90s? Somewhere. It's over 20 years old, right? There's a scene in that movie about how dinosaurs are made. Remember this scene? Mr. DNA, the little DNA cartoon comes out and it's explaining to the audience how dinosaurs are made and the characters in the, in the movie are all sitting in their little seats and it's like a little roller coaster ride. I don't know if you remember that scene, but they're all asking questions to the animated thing and the, uh, the host of the park is talking to the cartoon. Well, um, 65 million years ago, a mosquito would land on a dinosaur and suck out some of the blood and that mosquito would get trapped in the sap of a tree. Well, that sap is now called Amber. What that is, is a corporate training film directed by Steven Spielberg. Here's the amazing thing about that scene. That film is like 20 some years old and it's a scene that most people remember. It's stuck in their mind. You get the things, what stands out to you from Jurassic Park? Well, when the T-Rex breaks through the gate and the whole Velociraptor's chasing them. Oh yeah, and Mr. DNA. That one stands out. And at the moment, when I was watching it back then, I was like, I wonder if Steven Spielberg was all pissed off and, and angry when he had to direct this part of his movie. I'm pretty sure he wasn't. I think Spielberg went, 
okay, I have to find a way to communicate boring um, material to my audience. Any superhero movie has to do the same exercise, by the way. Any, any sci-fi fantasy, you have to do the same thing. You have to explain the tech or the superpower to the audience in an entertaining way. It's no different than I have to talk about harassment in the workplace video that I have to make. I mean, these are the same, these are the working professionals have to do this kind of stuff. And I realized that, well, what if I, in my training film, just pretended that it was part of a larger narrative? What if it just so happens in my little film about how to make properly, how to properly package a shipping container? What if I made that and pretended it was part of Jurassic Park? How would I approach that differently if it was? It was an internal switch, but at that moment, everything changed because when I would show up to shoot it, I wasn't just going, oh, just throw the light over there. And you know, I mean, we just gotta just pan and scan the boxes. No, it became, how can I make this box look cool? It's a box, you know, how can I like, maybe if I brought a little Dana dolly or, do a little swooping camera move with some sound effects and like, you know, you, you, you all of a sudden you're directing a scene. That's direct, and it became, it changed the look of my little tiny corporate films. It changed how, it, and the clients started to see this excitement when I would come to shoot their product because how cool is it for them that someone is actually thrilled to be there shooting the most boring, dry stuff you can imagine. It changed everything for me. That one decision started to open the door to other projects just like it. And eventually, and even today, I now have a niche where I create narrative films for corporations. They're like little short films, but they're big budget short films that I'm getting to, it's no different than a movie, working with actors, writing a script, coming up with concepts, shooting, and I got a thing coming up that's set in 200 AD with Roman soldiers, like all because it's a corporate thing. It's all because of that one decision to, I'm gonna pretend that everything I'm doing is part of this fun, magical cinematic universe, even if it's an interview with a CEO. You know, is there a way I can make this, you know, how would Deacons shoot this CEO talking about how he started the company? You're, it's fun, suddenly it becomes fun and great. And, and that kind of thing can immediately start adding a lot of work to your reel. I know a lot of directors who have been in the industry for many, many years who, well, let me rephrase. They want to be directors. They fantasize like myself. They grew up and they saw uh, Back to the Future or Jurassic Park as kids and and went, ah, oh, that's what I wanna do, I wanna create that. And now they're editing for reality television or shooting wedding videos and not doing what they dreamed. You have to get experience directing. And if you were to ask yourself, how many hours have you actually spent directing? Like beyond, not, this is not on set, this is not on set as a PA or editing or even writing, how many hours have you spent actually directing? How many hours would that actually be? 
That is so vital because when you get your shot, when someone does open that door for you, you better hit the ground running and know exactly how to do it. Well, it's kind of a maddening thing to think about, right? Oh, I don't have any experience directing. How do I do that? Well, you don't always need a camera. One of the things that I tried that really transformed a lot of what I do is um, I wanted to get better at working with actors. So I invited a couple of actors to my studio. I gave them a scene from a play. I had no cameras and no lights and I just had the two of them reading the screen scene to each other, act out the scene, and I tried to see if I could get them to a better, more connected performance. That's it. And it's important to say that this was not a scene I wrote. This is just a scene out of a play that the actors just got on the spot, reading through it, do the scene together, and it's so awkward and so hard for the, just the actors. Okay, I'm seeing the awkwardness. I'm seeing the fact that they're trying to read the lines and remember what to say. I'm seeing that they're not connecting. How can I make them connect? How do I do that? It is terrifying. It, it, I would have massive anxiety before each time I would have them come over to try it. Um, but it changed everything for me because now, because that's directing. That's sitting there in the chair for hours. All right, actors, try holding hands and see if that helps connect you more or sinking them into their environment, painting pictures for them. Imagine that you're having a picnic on a blanket right now and there's a storm cloud coming and the rain pellets are just starting to fall. Like feel the rain, smell how the ground is feeling and now action and see what happens. This is all directing and I would say that if you don't have any hours doing it, this is one way that you can increase the amount of work that you're doing. So it's so important and you have to, you have to be very uh, relentless about it. Constantly finding, like if you find that you're in this, been in this business for more than, I don't know, six, eight years and you've got one short under your belt, it's, you, you, it's time to step it up and figure out a way to get something else done. Um, another thing that I've done that's helped me is um, I had a shoot once where it was just a little corporate thing. The shoot was on a Friday. We had a little grip truck of grip and lighting stuff in the truck. Well, I couldn't return the truck until Monday. So that weekend, I took uh, the truck with the camera that I'd rented. And on a Saturday, we just went and got a couple actors and I wanted to experiment with some intimate, like a love story. I'd never tried that before. I'd never done like a love scene. I didn't know how to do it even, but I got some actors that I trusted and they trusted me and we just tried stuff and just, I mean like a, two, a couple falling in love and just what, how to shoot intimacy, you know, and just create this beautiful little love story. We didn't even have audio. We just had visuals. It's on, the, it's on my reel. It's just like as something that we played with and tried, it's, it's putting work out there. That is super important uh, because when the window comes, and it will, there will come a time when someone decides to give you a shot. You got to have something to show them. You got to have you know, some sort of real, they have to believe in you somehow. So <laughs> hopefully you're not trying to scramble the night before to put something together. Like this is how you do it. Um, another way to be working is you have to, you have to aggressively expand your network. 
that, that people hear that and they think the word networking. And that is what I mean, but that's not totally what I mean. I, I think it would, the better way to phrase it would be making more friends. Um, usually when people think about expanding their network, they think about going to a networking event, which I think is one of the worst places. <laughs> I mean, that can be great, but it's one of the hardest places to actually network, actually build your network. I think one of the a really good places is actually a film festival. And the key to things like festivals, screenings, things like that is not just meeting someone at an event, it's following up. So uh, my, the feature I just shot, um, the reason, one of the big, the first things that got going as far as got, got that feature off the ground was me meeting the screenwriter at the Austin Film Festival. And the only reason that I ever even got the screenplay from him, so his name is Dwayne Worrell, he was speaking on a panel. So I'm just an audience member. I didn't even have a project in the festival. I was just there to attend, to meet people, to do exactly what I'm talking about, to aggressively expand my friend network. Dwayne spoke on this panel because he had written, uh, it was an award-winning film through Amazon called The Wall. Uh, John Cena's in it. Um, Aaron, J, uh, Jason Aaron, Aaron Taylor Johnson, guy from Kick-Ass, I'm blanking on his name. He's Quicksilver. Anyway, directed by Doug Lyman, who did The Born Identity and Mr. and Mrs. Smith. So, wow, Dwayne, wow, he wrote this? Wow, what a guy. So, you know, I'm super intimidated, but I go up and I introduce myself and, you know, we, we hit it off okay. But I made sure to get his contact information so that I could follow up with him later which we did once we both got back to LA, which is one of the reasons to live in LA because a lot of people live here. Anyway, so we went out to dinner and that was where it was really important to just be a person, not a desperate, <laughs> you're so great, Dwayne, I wanna work with you. It was just, what do we have in common? He likes sports, uh, he like you know. He likes sci-fi action. We just kind of bonded over common interests and we became good friends. And then it was when we had this connection, then he sent me the script for The Abandon. And when I read it, it was like, wow, this is the best script I've ever read. Then I took that script, went to another film festival, and I met a couple of producers. From the, I did the same thing, same exact thing. Met them saw that they had made a couple of films that were lower budget. After the festival was over, I followed up. Said, hey, would you like to go to coffee sometime? We could chat about whatever. Can made a connection, hung out with the guy, said, you know, I just came across this script that I really liked, passed it to him. He read it and said, let's do it. Let's make a project. All of that came about because of just aggressively making sure I was constantly meeting people. Um, I will put on task lists each week to meet more industry people. Usually it's by a month. Like this month I need to meet three new people, make three new friends. Uh, and I would say I don't limit it to has to be a producer or an agent. Um, it could be anybody in the industry really because you just don't know who. <laughs> Ironically, I, I made a friend in a writing class that I'm in. This is a super nice guy. It's really humble, soft-spoken guy. And he, 
I learned he just moved to LA. So I was like, oh, he just moved to LA. He's a director like me. He's a writer, director guy. And just, just seemed like a nice guy. And I kind of felt bad for him. Like, oh, you probably don't know anybody in LA. You want to grab a coffee sometime? Yeah, sure. So we went out to coffee, me and my wife, and just hung out with him for a bit. Like, what does your wife do? Oh, you know, she's an actress. I'm like, oh, yeah. I think I said something like, trying to make it in the big time, huh? Ooh. And I'm like, well, man, it'd be fun to hang out with all of you know maybe go on a double date or whatever you know just being friends just again expanding the network being friends making connections growing the thing i said you know what we're having a cookout at my place you want to come over like you you know you're new to town you probably don't know anybody come on out meet some friends it'd be great to have you he shows up and his wife <laughs> gets out of the car and she is like very a very known Golden Globe winning actress, and I'm just like, <laughs> he he. I had no idea who his wife. Like it was, it's hilarious thinking about it. But it all came about because of this constant push to continue to make more friends, grow the network. Because that is how jobs get made. People, the jobs that rarely don't happen because of the meeting. They happen because you're hanging out at someone's birthday party and we're like, dude, you know what? I've got this idea for a comedy horror. We should, you want to do it? We should do it. Like that happens all of the time, all the time. That's how you get things made is by having all these friends. If the only friends that you have are your mom and just your couple of buddies you went to film school with, you're, it's going to be a lot more difficult for you to actually get past where you are. You have to push beyond that boundary. What about um, nepotism, though? We, we hear, uh, we see in the comments, we hear from people, you know, all the time that you really can't get any meaningful work mm -hmm. unless you're related to someone. I have heard that myself. Um, nepotism is a real thing, um, especially if you live in a big hub city like L.A., New York, um, and you're competing against Kevin Costner's kids, you know, or whatever, or Spielberg's son who wants to, whatever, you're, that is the reality that's who you're dealing with. Well, I think it's really easy to fall back on that excuse and say, well, I can't because I'm not anyone's son. I grew up far away from Hollywood. Now, I'm not directing Marvel films at the moment, but that doesn't mean I'm not working, right? So you, it, it, your future and your career is something you have to grab a hold of. We can make a thousand excuses all day long about the reasons why we're not making it. Um, if that's what you're doing with your creative time, then that's probably why you're not making it. Yes, good for them. You know, Steven Spielberg's son, I don't even know his name, but good for that guy. Like he's got a connection and a good in. Well, then maybe you should become friends with someone like that. You know, maybe you should find a way to make, invent your own nepotism, you know, like become best friends with a showrunner if you can, you know, like that's how, because look, to be honest, like I would function the same way. We like to like throw the blame on this, oh, it's all politics and it's all who you know. Yeah. And I do the same thing. When I hire a project and I need a DP, who do you think I'm going to call? Do I call some demo reel that I've seen online of a DP I've never met, or am I going to call, you know, 
Sally, who I know is awesome and she's super talented and we've worked, that's on the call because that's how we're all like that, right? We all want to work with our friends and we all want to have this solid team of people. So it goes back to just making sure that you are connected to the right people. I mean, that's really, it, it sounds simple, but that's really, and rather than um, making excuses as to, oh, I'm not connected to anyone, I'm not so-and-so's relative, I think that's just an excuse to not go out and actually do the scary work of becoming friends with, you know, these people. My personal humble opinion. <laughs> but So when you've been to networking events, it's it's kind of reminds me of like, you know, these like singles dances yeah. back in like the 80s and 90s that I would hear people go to and, you know, like, okay, hey, I'm here to meet someone and there's like this weird desperation and awkwardness. Whereas if you're at a film festival or taking a writing class, you're engaged in something else. Mm -hmm. And then if naturally something happens or you approach somebody that's a speaker, it just, it seems like there's just a different way. There's less pressure maybe. Yeah, the nice thing of it, yeah, because networking events, and I'm, I'm not saying never go because there, there is value in them, but it is exactly like that. It's speed dating. It, and it's generally you, everyone is coming up to each other going, how can you advance my career? <laughs> it's a very self-centered way to meet people. It's, I mean, imagine if you were trying to date somebody and you were going, I'm really looking for a wife or a husband. I mean, the... <laughs> The other person is going to be like, uh, sure, slow down there, cowboy. Like, right. I don't even know your name, right? Like, what do you do, Jason? That's right, yeah. You, mm -hmm. yeah, it's and I'm looking at your watch and the car you're driving, mm -hmm. and, yeah. Yeah, you know, if I'm and it happens, you know, and I'm not even like anybody. And if people find out I'm a director and then they're an actor, oh, you're a director, like, you can just feel the energy of like this. Uh, it's a it's a hard place because everyone is essentially feeling the same way. Now, and if I were in that same thing, I've got actors coming at me from this way, but I look over there and there's a an investor. Now <laughs> <laughs> well, now that's you doing oh, it. Oh, yeah. hey, you want to make a movie? You know, it's that sure. same. I mean, it's human nature. Yeah, it is human. So I think finding I think in the, if you are at the networking event. There is a positive way to go about it. And I think that would be to try to remove the desperation from it. Go to the event without the mindset of, I have to get a job. Just like you wouldn't go on a date saying, I have to find a partner. It just puts so much pressure on this precious little connection that you're trying to make. If you just remove that from the equation and just say, I'd like to just make a friend. That is so much easier because, you know, oddly enough, some of the best connections I've made at things like that are usually someone like the, the person that's serving the hors d'oeuvres, you know, <laughs> like hit it off with so-and-so and we're like, isn't this whole thing such a crock? Like, <laughs> I know, man, people come down here, they're so desperate. Ah, ha, ha, what do you do? Oh, I'm, you know, my name's Johnny and I, I'm a DP and I actually just, I'm just doing this for extra work. What? You are? No way. You know, and then all of a sudden you're friends. Ah, oh, it's so much easier to do that, do it that way, to take the pressure off this desperation. Ah, oh. but a film festival or writing class, those are great because the focus is not on you as much. It's on either their film or your film or 
writing class is a good one because it's like you're focusing on a craft of like getting better. You're meeting other people also with similar goals. They're all there to improve their craft and, and driving towards this direction, not this direction. I mean, yes, we're all trying to make it, but we're all looking this way and you just happen to be looking at the person next to you and you're just kind of becoming this, making a bond that way. So there, it's a much easier way to make friends and to, to build a team. Jason, when you were starting out in this business, what attitudes did you have that were wrong in terms of how the industry worked or how to conduct yourself in a meeting? Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's a saying that youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> I think what that saying means is that we, especially when we come out of film school or school, we we just have this inflated sense of who we are, of how brilliant we are. That is the number one killer of careers that I think that there is, of just having this overinflated sense of what you can do. Um, and I definitely suffered from that, you know, because I, we all who do this dreamed the big dream, you know, we all watched that movie, there was probably a movie that you saw when you were young and you were like, oh, I can do that. We, and we all, and it's probably true, that's the thing. And then we just start to build this framework of who we are as people. And then you actually get into the world and start to try to work and nobody looks at you like that, especially because, well, what have you done? You're just, you're 20, <laughs> you know? Uh, that really was, um, was a blow. Uh, having a, more of an ego than I deserved, if that makes sense, you know? I think I never, and one of the things that really tripped me up for years, and it still has ripple effects to this day, is that I didn't understand the importance of a mentor. How much time that would have saved me if I had just found someone to tell me what to do because I had no idea we're just stumbling around in the dark uh, like how do you get the first job on set I, who, no one told me how to do that so years had spent trying to figure out even how to get an internship like my god it's so hard um, so being humble enough to just say please give me some advice because I'm, I'm just want to learn you know, that kind of thing. So those are both probably fall under the humility umbrella as far as the things that I did wrong. Um, I also think that there is a, that's the best way to say this. <laughs> Putting too much importance on, oh, this, <laughs> I'm gonna direct this two minute short or whatever and putting so much importance on it that you end up, it, it, it ends up breaking under the pressure, like just getting so wound up and so full of anxiety over this one little opportunity that you have that you end up locking out all other creativity. You become vision locked into something that isn't working. You know, that kind of thing can really kill you. Um, yeah. Uh, because you want it so bad? Yes, and you're so, you because you want it so bad and because you want to do it right. And boy, I, 
There is a real pressure to the fear of making a mistake. Um, and that is something I wish that I could have understood a lot earlier, is that it's, it is, if I wish someone would have come to me and said, it's all right to mess up sometimes. You know, if you look at some of the greatest moments in cinematic history, they were generally mistakes, you know, or improv lines from an actor or some sort of, something didn't go quite right and that's the thing that's on the film because it just had this real magical to it. When you're putting so much pressure on making it absolutely perfect, like you, and afraid of the mistake, you just kill all your creativity. That's such a dangerous spot to be. Um, I wish someone would have told me that. And I think one of the things I've noticed from filmmakers who are very successful is they have this very simple work ethic that no one taught me that I wish I had known. And that is like, for example, I, I know a couple screenwriters and their, their work ethic is almost identical. They have a set time, they get up every day and they do their morning routine, whatever it is, brush their teeth, work out, whatever. Turn off their phones and for a couple of hours block, they write. Write and write and write and write and write. After the end of that little block of time, whatever they've said, usually it's at least an hour or more, they take a break, they take their lunch, they turn their phone back on, they check their Facebook and whatever, and then they turn it off again, and they write and they write and they write and they write and they write, and then they cut it off, and now they're free to relax. I don't think I've ever even heard of that done in any kind of filmmaking class. No one ever said to me, like, you need to be super disciplined and guarded with your time to make sure that you are honing, practicing, working on your craft for set hours every single day. I didn't do that for, man, a long time, long time, years. So, and those years they slip in, they slip by and suddenly it's a decade and you just aren't getting better. You're stagnating, you're circling the drain. So I wish someone would have mentioned that early on because it would have also really helped. This is how people, when they break through at young ages, it's because they've been more disciplined about that kind of thing. I'm convinced of that. Where you see them come out of the gate and it's like, dang, how did this guy get so good at 25? Probably because they were more disciplined, at, very focused on their craft. That means being all alone, probably working on a script, studying, reading without looking at their phones and all of that kind of stuff. But when you're young, and you're thinking about dating or <laughs> whatever it is, the distractions of life, it, it's, it really will get in the way of, of your progress. It'll just make it take a lot longer. Um, I knew someone who didn't have a cell phone when they first came out because they had such pressure on them to be accountable for certain people that they wanted their time in the car to be uninterrupted. And everyone oh, would go, why doesn't this person have a cell phone? And the person would say, that's my time. When I'm driving, you know, this is before, you know, driving on, you know, with the, this was this was early on when before it was as taboo as it is now and dangerous, mm -hmm. but they were just like, no, that's my time. And and that's where I'm thinking, that's where I'm doing things I need to do for, for my day and I don't want to be disturbed. I think that's super vital. You know, it's really interesting to me because this is something that I've fought for and, and, I, and simultaneously struggle with, is this idea of I'm going to take from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. 
and I'm going to work my craft. Oftentimes for me, that's writing something. But the minute I do that, the minute I hit do not disturb on my phone and start hitting keys, my eyes drift over to that phone and I want to see if anyone's messaged me. It is unbelievable. That's called resistance. And it is a sneaky little bastard. Like it, uh, it's, it's, I don't know where it comes. I think it comes from a lot of places for a lot of people, like fear of success, whatever you want to call it, but it is sinister. Um, the self-discipline that it takes to actually go, no, I'm going to take this phone, I'm going to put it in the other room and I'm going to focus, I'm going to turn off my email, turn off the messages on my laptop, turn off social media and I'm going to focus on my craft for this two straight hours. I actually got an hourglass that has a one hour um, timer on it and I just flip it over and I'll watch the sand go through it force myself to do it. But every day, it's a struggle. Every single day, that resistance thing wants to fight you. Um, but consistently, the people I know who have broken through did that. And they did that for years. And what's crazy is, going back to what I had said at the beginning, they create an enormous volume of work because they're so dedicated. If you're finding yourself where you're working all day long on whatever it is that you're working on, it's probably some sort of day job that you don't love, and then you sit down to write a screenplay that night for like 30 minutes while you're checking Facebook, you're, you're just gonna take, you're just extending it out. You're just like, you're gonna take 30 years to actually get a meeting at that rate. Um, yeah, so I think it's important to pay attention to that resistance because it looks like different things to different people. Also, do some people people pleasers? They have the people pleasing disease, mm -hmm. and they want to be able to be there for <laughs> individuals. Right. You know, they want to be present for friends and family, but um, th there can be demands. So yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. This business, this business is. I found that there is this intense amount of anxiety attached to this industry. I think there's an, a, a lot of that attached to life in general. Um, this is not just me talking, but if you look at societies worldwide um, and the amount of people who feel anxiety, depression, and those kinds of things, there is so many people taking antidepressants, so many people dealing with this that they find traces of it in the drinking water. And, and we've seen that, I, I mean, it's very well known in LA, but there's so many people on Prozac or whatever that um, it's secreted and it ends up, you know, that's why we have to have filters on all our sinks because it's all in there. Well, what's going on? Why is there so many people so anxious and so stressed out and so depressed? I think that, that that's already there and then it's exponentially harder in our own industry. And I think that that comes from and I hate this part of our industry, this comes from this place where there is, there is definitely a looking down the nose at certain kinds of projects. So like if you, I'll give you a perfect example. I was, years ago I was looking at joining the DGA and my bread and butter oftentimes is doing commercial corporate stuff. And a lot of that's non-union, but that pays, it keeps the lights on, keeps, keeps me working and it's, it's actually great, it can be really great fun work and fulfilling work. Um, I asked them, 
So if I go union, can I still do non-union work? And they're like, well, it's probably not a good idea. I'm like, man, I don't know if it's a good idea for me to join at this point because I can't just stop working. What am I gonna do, go bag groceries until I get a union job? And they said to me, when you decide to take your career seriously, then you go ahead and come on and sign up with us. That right there is exactly what I'm talking about. It's this little bit of arrogance with these projects over here are legit. Marvel movie, whatever you, you know, high-end music video, Marvel, whatever you, you have these little category of movies, you know, movies I've heard of or a TV show that I've heard of. These are the legit ones. Everything else over here, if you're making a wedding video or a whatever, like those aren't legit. Those aren't considered. And you're, and when uh, people ask you that anxiety-induced question, what are you working on? And the only thing you're working on is a Colgate commercial. It's this, this flood of anxiety that comes up. It, it's Everyone I know struggles with it. it. They struggle with it, especially when they're not working. You know, when you haven't, when you're going to that event or even to a friend's house, because you know that the question is inevitably coming. What are you working on? And if you haven't been working, what are you going to say? Like it is so, oh, it just, it just fuels us all. And, and even people I know who work a lot struggle with the same thing. And I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out what that is and how to, how to work with it. And I do think there are ways to fight it. Um, I think the number one thing is changing your relationship to anxiety because when we experience it, when it crops up, we see it as a negative, right? It, it doesn't feel comfortable. Uh, there is a method in that I've heard, that I've practiced through meditation called noting. And that means when you feel the negative feeling, or I shouldn't say negative, the feeling of anxiety comes up, vroom, to take one second, and step back from it and go, okay, I'm experiencing anxiety. Is this positive or negative anxiety? Positive, because there is positive anxiety. Positive anxiety would be like, I got this big pitch meeting tomorrow at HBO, or you know, my film's in the contest, I hope I win. That's positive, that's cool. Like I'm about to screen something, oh, I hope my friends like it. That's exciting, right? That's a good kind of anxiety. And when you're experiencing it and you're taking a second to look at it and go, oh, well, of course I'm on edge because my film's about to screen. This is just, that's a good, that's okay. And it's okay to feel that. There's also negative anxiety, you know, like why won't anyone hire me? You know, things like that. Now, when you note these feelings, it's, I think, really vital to not judge it. it you are not trying to change it. You're just recognizing it. I'm feeling anxious because rent is due and I haven't been working. Okay, well, you know what? That's a rational fear. That is, you know, of course, who wouldn't feel anxious? There's something about just giving yourself a little permission in some of those cases to just be okay with it. Okay, yeah, this is a real threat. You know, I need a place to live or whatever. Because you don't want to get into the trap of being anxious because you're anxious because that just does this. Right? So noting, like just recognizing it and then changing your relationship to what it is. Um, you can also uh, take a look at it in, is this a thinking or feeling kind of, you know, thinking would be, 
uh, rent is due. You know, this is a fact. <laughs> it's due on the first and I don't have it. That's a fact. Feeling is, man, every time it gets cloudy and rainy, I just feel down. Like that's a feeling. So again, you're not changing it. You're just changing your relationship to it when it rears its ugly head and going, oh, it's a, it's a negative feeling and, it, and it's just a feeling. Okay. Well, you know what? I like hot chocolate. I'm going to go get one of those and just recognize it for what it is. I'm not going to try to change it. I'm just going to be okay with it. I think that's a, that's a huge, huge first step of dealing with it. Um, the second thing I would say is that you really need to pay attention to the people that you hang around with because um, they, you know, they say misery loves company. And what that means is when you get into a whiny mood, like finding other people to whine with, there's a lot of power in that. And it, all it does is it, it just feeds on itself. It becomes this loop and you can end up becoming more angry and more frustrated. I would say challenge yourself to, to be around people who are relentlessly optimistic. Um, or try to change your group's mindset to, hey, you know, I know we're frustrated that we haven't been working, but what if we just made something ourselves? You know, in, fuel some hope into this group that you're in if you can't change your group, right? Or find a different group. I think that's super, super important. Um, the third thing I would say is that, I, that I think this has been a big one for me is that um, they say that the number one way to fight feelings of anxiety is to find a community. Anxiety loves it when you're alone. You know, depressed people, when people commit suicide, they're not in groups. They're by themselves. There's reason for that. You know, one of the best ways is if you're surrounded by people who, especially in an optimistic, positive environment. Um, and I would say that this group shouldn't be filmmakers. Somewhere else. Now, I think, and it's even better if it's active, like something physical, but it can be kickball league or knitting or martial arts or ballroom dance or horseback riding, just some sort of community, regular community activity where you are plugged into a bigger family of people that's not filmmaking related is so incredibly powerful. Um, I personally, I found jujitsu. That was my big, it really helped me a lot. And because in jujitsu, I took it for self-defense. Um, they say that jujitsu is one of the best martial arts for self-defense. Uh, because in street fights, things generally go to the ground. And when you're on the ground, how do you deal with someone on top of you trying to choke you? So I started getting into that. And the thing is, here's what happens in my own journey. I'll be anxious about something. You know, anxiety rears its head. Ah, why didn't I get that job or whatever? I won't want to go. One of my buddies from class will go, dude, bro, you coming? <laughs> yeah, I'll be there. I go to class. I'm feeling it. I'm sitting in the car in the parking lot. Ah, I should go home and work on that script or whatever. No, I'm, the class is starting in two minutes. I'll go in. I go in. The minute I hit the mat, and so, some kid is on my back trying to actively choke me. Guess what I'm not thinking about anymore? I'm not thinking about the fact that that agent never called me back. I'm not thinking about 
the thing that's due tomorrow. I'm thinking about not getting choked by this animal that's behind me. You know, <laughs> that is, and when I'm done, and it's a, not only is it an amazing physical sport, like you are exhausted by the end, but it's a huge endorphin dump. You're just like, foom, and you're around a whole community of people who are learning a skill, getting better, focusing on something else. They're making their lives better. These are people, they all have their own interesting and rich lives. You are out of that artist community for just a second. And you're just enjoying some great social time in another group. I come back from that and I am supercharged when it comes back. Oh, oftentimes I'm on my way home. Like, I know what to say to that guy to get him to call me back. Yes, that's what I'm gonna, you know, it's, I'm usually on a huge euphoria high at the end of it. Community, community, community is so important. Like, I would highly recommend, and I know that the first step to do that, it's always hard. Like to, they say in jujitsu, the hardest belt to get is the white belt, because it's, it's forcing yourself out of the house into this group of strangers for the first time. But man, please go out and, and get that done. Um, and finally, I would say when you if you find yourself dealing with it, there is a lot of comfort in the fact that if you are to, to make sure that you are working on your craft, continuing to make progress every day. Uh, there is a lot of comfort when you get to the end of a year and realize you wrote three screenplays that year. You know, that's that feels really good. Or you took a whole writing class and graduated, or whatever it is, like that. If you are not continually like getting better and practicing and feeling yourself improve, and, you know, that feels really good. That, that, that can also, because you'll know at the end of the day, at five o'clock when you log off and you decide to stop and put writing aside for a minute, you can go play video games in peace because you put in the work. That feels nice. You can relax because you know you did your work for the day. That, that's a really satisfying feeling. Did you ever need to use any of the um, moves in jiu-jitsu in real life? In real life? Uh, let me think. You know, well, interesting story. So in my own journey, uh, I had some very aggressive fathers. So my both were bullyish. Both had a lot of street fights. So as a kid, I grew up feeling utterly powerless. This really carried over in a career by the way, like as I would approach people that I was intimidated by, like that inner feeling of powerlessness was really strong. And so when I went into jujitsu, I was absolutely terrified, like to, I was essentially finding my own strength. Uh, I was taking class for about a year. And a lot of the, at least the school that I attend is all about self-defense. It's just someone on the street comes up to you and does this. You know, here's some things you can do at least to keep yourself safe. Um, anytime I'd ever been in an aggressive situation where it looked like something was about to, standing at a bus stop and someone aggressive was going to come up to me, I, I'm absolutely terrified and, and wish I could run away. Right before the very first day of shooting The Abandon, my last feature, I hear a crash downstairs in the house that we're staying in. It's three o'clock in the morning. I get up out of bed, I'm totally drowsy. My dog is freaking out. I walk downstairs and there's a guy standing in the kitchen. Now, it was the weirdest, most surreal thing because I was, I was still just a very new practitioner of jujitsu. I didn't, you know, I'm no, I'm no badass. 
But it was the first time in my life where I'm faced with a potential aggressive person and I felt peace because the way the guy, the guy was standing in the kitchen, leaning on the counter, kind of hunched, I thought he was going to rush me. Um, but I'd been practicing what happens when someone rushes you in class for a year. So I just, in that moment, I just looked at him and I thought, okay, well, if he rushes me, that's okay. I know how to deal with this. I can at least keep him from getting to anyone else in the house while they call the police or whatever and we can get this handled. So in the end, it turns out he was drunk and he found himself in the wrong house. Now, I didn't know this at the, in that first half a second when I saw him in the kitchen. You know, for a couple of minutes there, it was real touch and go. But prior to that, I probably would have grabbed the knife or freaked out or whatever, but... It, it really did, in a very positive way, change. Um, it was a great way to start shooting the movie. <laughs> you know, uh, to just have that calmness, you know, in the face of that kind of adversity was was really was really great. And it could be inspiration for your next script. I mean, how oh, yeah. bizarre is that that someone accidentally goes into the wrong house? But I guess right well, they you all know, look the same. I don't know. When it comes to inspiration for that, I mean, I have will say that when you learn. Some, when you get involved in some other sport or some other skill, you're increasing your skills in some other way, it really does fuel ideas. Like, you know, if you're, t whatever, horseback riding class, you're gonna be on that horseback riding. You're gonna be riding that horse, you're gonna be thinking, man, wouldn't it be cool to write a story about someone on a horse who's, or <laughs> whatever, it's going to happen, it just will, if you're an artist, you know, that's, that's one of the advantages to doing that, but yeah. Glad everything was okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When did you begin to realize that if you poured all of your energy and passion into your art, that one day someone would give you a job? When did I realize? Or that you'd be discovered? Yeah. You know, that's, a re that's an interesting question because it comes down to the definition of the word discovered. You know, what does discovered mean? I would say that uh, I, as a kid, and I think probably every filmmaker watching this probably feels this way. You look at whatever, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you go, I could do that. I wonder if anyone else believes I can do that. Like it's, I now I have to convince the world that I can actually do it. Now, in my case, the people that have believed in me and given me the shot have not been the people I expected. So uh, it, it, it was, came, it'd be like a best friend who just happened to be in a position to that they could hire me. And it just like came from back here and you're like, wait, what? You're gonna, that's when I was, it was like, it was one of those things where I always felt like I had something to contribute, something to give. I was just wondering how long it was gonna take for anyone to actually notice. You know what I mean? It's almost the other way around. It's like, I always, but I think we're all that way. We all feel that way. We all feel like we have something special and you're just waiting for the world to catch up <laughs> to where we are. Um, that can be a frustrating position, especially if you feel like no one's discovered you yet. But um, I have always found that when it does happen, and no matter which level you're on, it does happen, and that, that could mean a movie deal or it could mean getting 
a nice job, you know, directing a commercial, it always comes from the last place I expected, usually a friend or a contact of some sort. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, and I think that, yeah, it comes down to that maddening place of how long is it going to take for everyone else to discover what I can do? This is where, and this is where it's so important to continue to create and put out there stuff that you can do. <laughs> There's a great quote from Ira Glass, uh, who is the host of, um, or the creator of This American Life. And, and he talks about how when we got into the art, whatever it is that we got into, um, we all got into it because we have killer taste. And we always felt like we can do this X, Y, Z thing. Um, and then we start to create it. And we realize there's this gap between what we're creating and what we like. And we see that gap because we have good taste. And the only way to close that gap is to continue to create work. Lots of work, thousands of hours. And that's the only way to close that gap. And if you find yourself not creating anything and, and you're in this business just toiling away, editing reality television for years and years and years and never actually making anything, then you should probably, you're never gonna close that gap unless you do it. That is how people will discover you because the more you do it, the better you're gonna get. And eventually, law of averages says that that is what will happen. Come back and ask me in a year and we'll see, you know, and Spielberg is called, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, we'll see if that actually pays off, but um, that's how it's worked so far. Do you think the notion of being discovered is, is sort of an old term? You know, I'm, I'm sort of thinking of, you know, like a talent show from the 80s where you're going to be picked and you're going places, kid. But it almost seems like now they want to see how much work of your own have you put in without someone picking you. It seems like things have changed a lot. It, there has been a change. Well, the one thing that's changed, I think, is that um, the ability to create amazing stuff is is has come down to other levels where you can reach it. Because you know, back in the day, to create anything that looked any good, you'd have to rent these really expensive cameras and big lights and stuff. You don't have to do that anymore. I mean, it's just the way iPhones shoot looks amazing, like really amazing. So. There is still, I think, the divide between the, the threshold of television movies, you know, working with Disney on a thing that people have heard of. There is that little divide. So that still exists. And there's, there's that stuff and then there's everything else. But there is still so much amazing work out there to be had. You know, there's still... And you can be, I, the discovery can happen on those other little projects. Um, and that is, I think it's uh, really fun to do it because like, for example, I do a lot of work with hospitals and hospitals a lot of times hire me to create these little stories. And I'm telling you, they are so much fun to do because they're little short films that are usually really meaningful, really heartfelt. You're working with actors and, and it is, you're making a little movie. You get great practice and it is super, super fun. Uh, and I was discovered 
from that based on you know people that I knew and and just doing little shorts of my own like they would they would see a little short film or whatever hits a festival or something and then they go oh we should hire that guy to bring do our little thing that's how all that stuff happened so you could call that a discovery now is it going to win an academy award no but that's okay there's nothing wrong with that I'm I'm doing what I dreamed of doing as a kid and it is a blast and you know People may watch this and go, oh, that guy's never made a multi-million dollar thing. Okay, you're right. I haven't. But I'm having a freaking great time making and telling stories and moving people. It is, I'm it is just, the, it is the most fun career that you can have because you're telling stories and you're taking audiences on a ride. No matter where you're doing it, whether that's, a wedding video or completely on the opposite end with a Marvel film. You're doing the same job and it is really great. So yeah, it's, uh, I don't know if that answered your original question about being discovered, but I do think that there is a, when they're trusting you with telling the story for their brand or for their whatever, uh, there is a discovery process that does need to happen. They need to see that you have the talent to actually manipulate and tell a story and craft a narrative in a way that wraps up what they're trying to sell or do or say. Right. So hence the sort of corporate video that was in um, Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. I think also in Blade Runner too. Didn't they have a few, like they'd have these billboards yes. with these commercials? Well, that's right. You, I mean, most times when you see a sci-fi act, you know, stuff like that, fantasy, they'll have some sort of way to communicate information. Um, <laughs> that's that's corporate video one-on-one -on -one right there and heck what better way to practice you know if you are gonna let's just say you could look at your life from beginning to end and you knew that in I don't know 10 years you were gonna get to direct the next Blade Runner well wouldn't it be good to practice and you know that in that Blade Runner there's gonna be a whole time travel element that you're gonna have to fold into it and explain to an audience how it works wouldn't it be good to like kind of practice that now with your with AT&T client that you have or or whatever you know like wouldn't it be good to like kind of maybe because if you mess that up who cares you know it's just the a corporate video that not a lot of people are going to see wouldn't that be much better to do it that way and then by the time you get to Blade Runner sequel oh man I got this I've been doing this this is going to be fun and now I have all the money to do it. Like, that's a great way to look at it, you know? Did you see the Apple commercial around 1984? It's just the one where they throw the thing into the screen? Yes, I think so, right. Directed by Ridley Scott. Yeah, that, that, that Apple commercial, isn't that crazy? It has this amazing look, this really cool story. It never, it aired one time on television, I believe. And this is pre-internet. And it made so many ripples and it really made Ridley Scott's career. Like from there, he went on and did, I think, I think Alien was after that. Mm. He might have done The Duelist at that point, but yeah, that was, because Ridley Scott was a commercial director before he became uh, doing movies. So, yeah. How is finding work in Los Angeles as a director different from other places? Yeah, that's a good question. So. I've lived quite a few different places around the country. Um, 
I just grew up in Portland, Oregon. I lived in Nashville for many years. I went to, I lived in Eastern Washington. I lived back in Portland and tend to LA. Every single city in the country has their own little interesting, if you do film, it has their own little interesting hub. Um, for the most part, most cities have like some sort of industry that keeps it going. Um, like in Portland and Seattle, there's, you know, you got Microsoft and Nike and Adidas. Excuse me, a bunch of ad agencies there. So the, for the most part, a lot of the work that people do is in that realm. Uh, so, I mean, you can have a great career just doing Microsoft videos. And, you know, there's no shame in that. And that's sort of the industry that it's going to be. And the only difference between that and like a Nashville is replace Microsoft with music videos. It's the same kind of thing. Probably a smaller, more tight-knit film community um, doing similar kind of stuff and also great careers can be had by doing that. Uh, I've recently been doing a lot of work in Florida and Tampa and there, their industry is um, HGTV, I believe. Yeah, it's based there. So they, a lot of the people that work there work there at doing... And then I think Ashley Furniture makes a lot of their commercials there. So almost everyone I've worked with usually has spent some time working in that little realm. So moving from city to city, that's not a hub city. That's the biggest difference. It's really just, okay, what industry is here? And then, you know, now if you're talking indie film, the indie film markets in those towns look identical, which is kind of funny. And there's almost this funny little divide between those who are doing the corporate work like the doing the Microsoft stuff or the ad agency world. And then there's the indie filmmakers over here. And usually those two worlds don't intersect that much in a weird way. Now, I think there's a middle step as well. And that would be the hub cities, cities like New Orleans and Atlanta and New Mexico. So in those cities, tons and tons of work is happening. Uh, if you are below the line, any kind of crew position, makeup artists, and whatever, gaffer, grips, ACs, all of that stuff, you will work. You can work as much as you want, and you're working on great big stuff. You're probably going to be able to really do quite well. And that is a, if you want to work in movies, and even if you do want to be a director, but you're still you're starting out and you're working your way up the ladder, those can be great cities to go to because it's it's like. Like an, oh, I have a friend who just moved to New Orleans a few years ago and he told me when he first moved there, he couldn't believe how much work was actually happening. Um, they were doing a big movie and their base camp where all the catering was, where you met in the morning, was actually shared by two other gigantic productions. Three of them sharing one huge base camp. Like that's insane. I can't even imagine that. And he said that, because, boy, if you live here, you could work as much as you want, full-time, year-round, full union rates, all of it. Like, you could just clean house and work and work and work and work and work. So that does exist in L.A., but it's a lot harder to, to get. Um, because everybody moves to L.A. to pursue film. So everybody's a filmmaker. Your if you came from Kansas City and you were really good at, and you had like corner of the market on the whatever's in Kansas City, 
you are really nothing special when you get to LA. Like there, there will be, it's not that you're not talented, it's just that everybody does that here. Like everybody's like that. LA, those of you who don't live here, like the, the biggest difference is that LA is where the decisions happen. So if you are above the line, writers, directors mainly, and actors who wanna be on larger things, you, you gotta be here. So getting on those projects in an above the line position is a whole different game than anything else that you have to worry about in other cities. All you gotta do in say a Portland to get work is you're probably gonna bid on it by <laughs> against a couple of production houses that you're probably friends with. <laughs> you're gonna hire them anyway once you get the job, so it doesn't matter. But um, you're probably bidding on it in some sort of way. Uh, then you know the budgets are not gonna, yeah, they may be all right, but they're not gonna be millions, more than likely. Um, and yeah, it's gonna be a little, a fun little corporate thing and it's gonna be lower pressure. I mean, high pressure for the client, but overall the grand scope of life, not that big of a deal. LA, it's 100% different than that. You can work here, and most people do when they get here. If you're trying to get here and work as a filmmaker, yes, there is work to be had. Is it work that you want? That's the question. That's the real trick, um, because most of the people that move here, well, you gotta work somewhere, and it generally will come down to, do I work waiting tables, or do I work anywhere I can get into the industry? Um, you know, and that might be an assistant to some writer. You're not, you're not writing anything, but you're their assistant getting their coffee. It might be, most of the people I know go into reality somewhere, some way. Is it the dream job? Absolutely not. Do they like it? Probably not for the most part, but that's, there's a lot of that kind of work. Below the line stuff, you might be running a camera, you might be producing, but it's, it is not the dream job at all. So it's a weird, almost like purgatory that exists here because it's this giant machine. And that's the best way to define it. LA is an industry. Most of these other towns are communities. That's a huge gulf of a difference. So when you're here, you get you can get stuck in this filmmaker purgatory of like constantly working on stuff you don't like like reality shows or whatever, and then you're, you're making some money and you're surviving, but you cannot figure out how to cross the threshold from that to, all right, I'm gonna hire you because you're a great director to direct on this television show or helm the next Marvel film. Like that's a, that's a much weirder barrier to cross. And that doesn't exist. And if you don't live here, you're probably not gonna have to deal with that unless you're incredibly lucky. Unless you just happen to be the one guy who won that lottery ticket and gets discovered by the president of Disney and brings you over. Otherwise, forget it. It's probably not gonna happen. So that's a real trick, a real weird. Most filmmakers you meet in LA are in purgatory. They're in that weird. They're, they're all writing something. They're all developing something. They're all, all of us, everyone I know, they have the thing they wanna do. They have no idea how to get over that bridge, but they all wanna do it. 
Um, I think if you're going to move here, that is an important thing to understand because you, you've got to work somewhere. You got to make a living. Um, and I think if you understand going in that your life will probably be taken over by uh, that purgatory, you have to continue then to keep working on your own craft when you're not on set doing this other thing over here. That is the key to figuring it out is I've, I got to live. I got to make a living somewhere. Putting a barrier around that and going, when I'm not doing that, then I'm going to work on my thing. Every writer I know who's got an agent, they, their agents always tell them or managers tell them the same thing. Yeah, I know you're working all day on that TV show and I know you're tired, but if you want anything, if you want to have a career of your own at all, you have to keep working on your own stuff on the side. They tell them that straight up and every writer I know does that. They'll work all day on their thing. When they get home, they eat their dinner, they sit in there and they write for a couple hours on their own passion projects and that is how they break through. That is how they keep going forward. But it's harder, you know, especially when you get married, you start having kids, life starts getting in the way and to find the energy to do that is, is the biggest challenge. That leads me to my next question because we have a quote from you that we uh, got from our 2019 interview that mm -hmm. we did with you. What you do in the dark when no one is looking, that's where your metal is. That's how you get better. Do you still embrace this idea? Yeah, no question about it. I, yes, it is. When you're, in your, when you're young, when you're in your teens and in your 20s, we are all going to school, right? We, and then when we get out of college, most of us stop. Why is that? Why do we all stop learning and taking classes and honing? Why do we do that? What, is there, is there like, did somebody on high like flick a switch and say you're, you've learned all that you need to know? No, no. Um, but we seem to always do that. And the only way to do that is the self-discipline um, to continue on your own when no one's looking. All right. I'm not on Facebook. Hmm. What can I learn? <laughs> what am I lacking in my directing skills? Gee, I really suck at working with actors. I should probably get better at that. How do I do that? Well, maybe read a couple of books or take, you know, that's, that's where the real, yes, you, you, you must do that if you want to be the best. You have to do that. I was, I was working on a show recently in this last year. And in the last couple of years, I was in a writing class. And um, I started the writing class because I just wanted to get better at crafting stories, at, at just understanding how storytelling works on the most basic level. Um, it was an area that I felt was lacking in my own journey. And so I, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. So at night I was taking this class, landed this job and I'm directing all these episodes and the executive producer pulls me aside and he says, because you know, there's been a few people that have come up to me and say, and, and said to me, why is the guy who's directing your show taking a writing class at night? And he said to me, he goes, and they're telling me this, they're asking me this like it's a negative. And I said to them, are you crazy? It's because he knows that life's a journey, that you have to keep sharpening and honing and pushing all the time. Otherwise you stagnate. 
Because that, he thinks that's why he's got the job, because he knows that, not because he goes, ah, I know everything. Um, it was such an interesting thing to hear, uh, but that, that's a, an insight into how most of us think. Like we get to a point where we think we've mastered it. And if you think that, you probably haven't. And do you think that that goes back to what we talked about sort of, I guess, a snobbery in this business? Because at what point is anybody finished with learning something? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I can. I think, I think a lot of the traditional snobbery that we think of when we think of Hollywood, I mean, I think it ultimately stems from insecurity. You know, this idea that maybe I'm not, if they were to be honest in the dark, maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. Maybe, I mean, a lot of the people that have treated me poorly were people that were threatened by me. And I'm not saying I'm all that. I'm just saying all of us have experienced that where you just, there's someone that you run into that treats you badly and you almost know on this gut level that it's like, I think they're threatened by me. I don't even know why. I'm not trying to like hurt them. I'm not trying to beat them, but they are viewing me like I'm trying to beat. Like, so it all stems from this deep, deep insecurity, I think. Um, that's really a shame. And a lot of the people I think who are the worst offenders of that are the people that don't continue to grow. Uh, they feel like, this is where you'll hear it too. You'll hear it when it when someone will complain about the young coming up and taking their jobs. That's where you can really spot it. That is someone who has, uh, it's, a, it's a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. It's a, a fixed mindset is someone who believes that talent is something you're born with. A growth mindset is some, someone that believes that talent is something that can be learned by continue repeated behavior. Now you may have a knack, a propensity for math or photography, but that doesn't mean you're a genius out of the womb, you know? It, it has to be cultivated and worked. The people that use those terms like, <laughs> those kids don't know what they're doing, they don't wanna hire an expert. Well, no, it's not that, it's probably not that at all. It's because they're hungry. They're, they're coming up and, and fighting for it to learn and they're probably, they're the ones watching Film Courage interviews to get better. The people that are angry are not, they're not. They're just not. Now they're all gonna comment on, <laughs> on this one and say, what is that kind of? But uh, it's, yeah, that's, uh, I think that's where that comes from though. I, that, and I think if you are one of those people and you're constantly feeling this threat, uh, it's time to take a serious look at where you are standing and where those feelings are really coming from. Are you feeling threatened because you're worried about your job? And if you're worried about your job, why are you so worried? Is it because you think that they're gonna discover you for being a fraud maybe? Or is it because, um, I don't know, like there's many reasons why that could be, I just think it's it's time for self-reflection time sure. if you find yourself in that position. I think we can all think back to when we were threatened of someone. I mean, I can picture being 14 and mm -hmm. being incredibly threatened of somebody. And now that I look back on it, it was because, yeah, I was afraid they were going to, you know, it was my little part-time job. And then I thought they were going to take my job. And they weren't. They were just there for the summer. 
yeah. before they went to college. But, you know, it's, it's, if we look back to things when, when we did it, to, you know, we can say, okay, well, that was why I, I couldn't say hi to this, you know. And then, and then when it happens to you in reverse, then you go, okay. That's a fair point. It is a fair point because, yes, I've, I've struggled with that too. There's certainly directors have come up that I'm like frustrated with. Like, <sighs> but if I'm being honest, I would say it's because I, I could even, I mean, it's been, it's happened. I'll see some 20 year old do something that I can't do. That bothers me because, you know, whatever. And it's, who knows? They spent, all their high school years were learning After Effects and they just got really good at doing VFX and they're coming out of the gate with some amazing short that's like, how in the world did he... And I feel threatened by that and I want to treat them badly because of that. I think it's just, uh, that's not... Instead, wouldn't it be better, and I'm talking to myself here, but wouldn't it be better for me to take a look at this person and go, maybe we should team up. Wouldn't it be cool to like take someone who's got that desire and has the skill that I struggle with and to bring them onto my team and we could work together? I mean, this is a collaborative art after all. Should, isn't that the way it's supposed to work? Like you're taking all these artists who are hungry and great. Do you know how much that would mean to him or her if you did that and how hard they would work? Because chances are they are looking at you as you know a veteran or whatever wanting that approval and and just begging for a shot. Um, I, I think it would be a much healthier way of looking at it. Because uh, think about it, that's what we all want. That's what we all wanted. We all want someone to believe in us and not be threatened by us and give us a shot. So, um, you know, I, and it actually makes me wonder if the those of us who feel threatened, who feel angry, who who, if we feel like, well, no one ever helped me. Why should I help them? Yeah, or maybe I don't have anything to give them because I never did get a shot. So they're going to just surpass me. You know, those are all hard questions to to, to process. Um, I think if you recognize that that's how you're feeling, it's time for a reality check on, you know, maybe maybe you have gotten shots and maybe you are further than you think. Maybe you are someone of influence that does have a lot to give, you know, and holding on so tightly to your position is, is I think it's like a cancer because it, when you do that, this gets back to what we were talking about originally, holding on to something when it's trying, life is trying to slip past and, and morph it in your hands. Maybe it could grow into something even more incredible than you're, you're imagining right now. You know, like whenever you start to feel that gut go yip and hold on to that thing, like I think that's, <laughs> that's a high time to like take a serious look at, at where you are. Do you have to be a genius to create a masterpiece? <laughs> Ooh, do I have to be a genius to make a masterpiece? No, I don't think so. You know, it's here's the great thing about this industry is that it's collaborative. Um, I think that there's a lot of people, if you look at some of these movies that, uh, I think one of the classic examples is Casablanca. It was an absolute disaster in the making of, but somehow the pieces magically fell together to create this incredible thing. And that can happen. I mean, there's a lot of, I won't name names, but there's a lot of directors that do one great film and the rest of their films are just terrible. And you're like, how in the world did that first one 
end up so good and the rest of these are so bad is probably, a lot of it's because they were probably had this amazing support team around them to help carry them along. And that's one of the, I'd say, advantages to directing is that I'm not advocating for this, but you you can do it and not know what you're doing. And actually that happens, it's very common. <laughs> it's very common. Because think about it, like if your DP knows his stuff or her stuff, he doesn't, you know, your director doesn't have to know where to put the camera. Uh, if you have amazing actors and they're just spot on with, they just know how to do it and you're, you know, your production designer is amazing. You know, your director, you know, you can phone it in and be fine. Like your other departments will carry you. There's a great comfort in that actually. Like if you come in and you have no idea how to shoot the scene and your DP is amazing, well, they will help you. So no, you don't have to be a genius. Um, and I, th I think there's a comfort in that because you know, the insecurity, the, maybe the potential insecurity that's there of, ooh, what if I don't really know what I'm doing? I think not all of us struggle with that, but I definitely think that's a thing. I remember hearing an interview with um, the guy who, the, the composer for Gladiator and Dark Knight and uh, Hans Zimmerman. I remember hearing an interview with him years ago where he said, wow, I just landed this job. I think it was the job for Gladiator. It's like, wow, I just landed the job to do the score for Gladiator. I hope no one discovers that I'm a fake. It's like, what, really, you think that? And I know there's a lot of people, very accomplished people who, who have the same thought of what if, what if I'm not a genius? What if <laughs> there's some flaw in me that is gonna keep me from getting to up there? Um, no, you don't have to be. So this is where it becomes really important to make sure you're surrounded by the absolute best, you know, really talented artists and filmmakers. And that's that's awesome in filmmaking, you know. It's a really positive thing when your DP is better than you are. Uh, wow, that's cool. I, I've worked with actors who I can tell would be amazing directors. And they have such good instincts. They're out directing me sometimes. I could choose to be insecure about that, but better to go, you know, that's actually a pretty good idea. Let's do that. I, I like your idea. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> Dude, let's do that. So that's, that's a really, uh, I, I think, uh, that's a good thing. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. That doesn't mean, that doesn't give us permission to just phone it in. I do think that we need to bring our A game and be prepared when we're, when we're working. Um, but no, genius, no, no, you can. There's lots of people working today that probably shouldn't be there, <laughs> but you know, that's okay, it's all right. That right there is the number one skill that a director needs to have is how to outthink all the problems all the time because they are coming at you a thousand miles an hour. And when it's going great and things are all running in the same direction, that's awesome. But when, you, when you're faced with the worst, that's where the testament of how good you are really will come true. Um, when we did Kenobi, we were shooting out in the Trona Pinnacles, which is it's central California, it's kind of near Death Valley, and it's this, it's a, there's not a lot out there. There's this, this land with these big, it's a magical looking place, these big spires sticking up out of nowhere, but you know, we're three hours or more from LA. 
everyone came in on this bus and it's a, tr it's a lot of people out there doing all of this stuff. And a lot of, not just, it's not just a love story or something simple, it is droids and stormtroopers and stunt guys and like all the, I mean, a million different children, you know, and keep in mind the stormtroopers can't hear you when they're, when you're trying to direct them and they can't, because the helmet, you can't hear anything. You also can't see anything because you're, you, you have this much to see. First day, we had wind gusts up to 30, 40 miles an hour. And so I realized I couldn't shoot anything that involved dialogue. Huh, okay. So how am I gonna deal with that? And then the props truck got into a car accident on the way to set. So we had no droids, we had no speeder, we had no, we had this big moisture evaporator tower. Didn't have any of it, didn't show up. All I have are some actors and high winds. So that is a, a perfect example of all the plans that I had made, all the storyboards and shot lists that I had all went right out the window because all of a sudden I have nothing to shoot. I can, we can go over here and do this. Oh no, we can't because it's, the, it's too windy. Okay, so all of a sudden I was forced to severely think on my feet and basically rebuild the whole film in my head and we started by shooting inserts, which is the complete backwards way you're supposed to do it. When you're doing a, a, a scene or show or something, you, you generally start with your master, your coverage, and then you figure out, oh, we need the guy pulling the wallet out. Well, this had to be the total opposite of that. It was, I, I could get away with like one line of dialogue or something. Like there's a shot in there, if you've seen it, where Aunt Baru has, the, she's binocular, she turns to the camera, the camera pushes out behind her and she goes, oh, it's stormtrooper. Um, that was during that day because I <laughs> had, it was one line, we would sit there, we'd get the camera set up, we're waiting and the wind would go, <sighs> action, <laughs> bang, hit the shot and then that's it. Um, then the next day we had a little kid on set and he was so little that he didn't, he wasn't quite old enough to really understand that he was on a set. So it, to him it's playtime and costume um, very, it makes it really hard. He's one of the youngest actors I've ever directed, so it makes it hard to, to uh, you know, how do you, to, to handle, because you can't be super rigid about your schedule and your shot list, because he's, he's gonna be the way he wants to be. And, you know, he's afraid of the stormtroopers and starts crying, and you know, it's just like, a, so your ability as a director to think on your feet is super vital. Uh, that's what that job required. Um, the ways that you can fight that, the ways that you can fight maybe is the wrong word, the way you can prepare for that, um, because it will happen to you if, eventually. There will be days where things are gonna go completely wrong. First is to prepare more than you even think you need to. Like having as many detailed shot lists or storyboards that you can come up with is super helpful, especially for something like that, where it's, very complex, lots of moving pieces, costumes, actors, kids, da da da. Really knowing what, you, if you get on set and you're gonna be going, and you're thinking you're gonna figure it out on the day where to put the camera, that's a very dangerous spot to be because that may happen anyway, whether you want it to or not. So at least having an idea before you get there is really good. But even that's not enough, like understanding 
I need to have this stand out between these two people. I want to start with this wide drone shot coming down. Then I want to get this over the shoulder, but I really want to get this intimacy between these two people, whatever it is. Um, I think that having a very strong background in editing is the, I won't say number one, I will say that's probably the number two skill that you need as a director is really knowing how to cut a scene in your head while you're working because it does ha it happens all the time where you'll be on set. Shoot, 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 shoot. Do we have the scene? Mm -hmm. uh, hang on. So we got him. We got him. Got the master. Oh, you know what we never did? We never got him pulling the thing out of his pocket. We, we should get that. Oh, and maybe the sun's going down. You, can, you have time for one shot. How are you going to get that and get your scene? Um, th there is no other way to really get good at that unless you're editing. Spending thousands and thousands and thousands of hours in an edit suite putting together other people's things because then it'll just it'll ingrain in you a reflex of what you're going to actually need on set. Um, if you don't have that, you're just at a, such a disadvantage. Um, if you're in the position, like personally, I hate being in the position of not knowing something, of not understanding how a camera works. I don't like that. Like, I don't understand, not understanding the difference between an 85 and a 35 lens. Like, what does that mean? If, if you find yourself in that position, I think it's really important to spend some time in the camera department to figure it out because it just smooths it out for you so much when you're there. So when it comes to editing, really having an understanding of that. So in Kenobi, it's a perfect example. The last, because we had so many problems from the weather and everything coming in, the last half of the last day of that was the most insane day I've ever experienced on set. It was, our, we were in a bowl. The sun is going down. And when it's down, you're done, period. And you, there was money on the line. There was an investor that, several investors that had ponied up large sums of money to make sure this happened. And you better get it done. You better get it done. There's like, no, and you are in the pressure cooker. You are, it's go time. So no time to like not know what to do. We were, I had to go, okay, we have to kill the bad guy. Go here, go here, you know, throw the lightsaber, one shot, two takes, done, move on. And we were like leapfrogging into certain sets. And the final fight scene, when he does the big lightsaber thing, we actually ran out of sun. The sun went down and dipped behind the little bowl that we were in. So we ran out to another location where we could still see just a, like a foot of sun on the horizon just a little bit. And it was two circles around him, one wide, one tight, and that's it. But I knew because I'd spent so long editing that, we, that that would give us enough to get us the story. We just barely got it. Um, that, that is such a huge skill that, that's necessary. So the first one was being able to think on your feet, you said, and then the second skill a, a good director should have is just being very proficient with editing. Yes, really understanding editing. I think the third skill, and this I would say is number one, and it's knowing how to work with actors. And I am sh continually shocked at how that is a skill that most directors don't seem to know. I don't understand why that one is the one that's shoved aside. Just today, a friend of mine who's a DP said that, um, she said 
they're working with an actor, the lead of this movie, and the lead is not good. And I said, well, hopefully your director can direct the actor and, and, and bring up a good performance. And he, he said, or she said, no, the director's giving no notes whatsoever. Like he's, he's working with the camera department and the actors left on their own. The amount of time, it is unbelievable. The amount of times I hear actors complain about this. I went out there, I'm doing my thing. I'm getting no notes. I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, if you understand what it's like to be an actor, it's like painting blindfolded. You're out there performing, but you can't see it. And if your director is hiding in Video Village back there, not telling you, uh, that is a, it's a very, it's a very frustrating place to be as an actor. And um, it just astounds me that more directors don't spend more time learning the skill. And it seems to be this terror when it comes to it. This, this idea that working with an actor is scary. Uh, I'm not sure where that idea comes from. I worked with an actor, uh, sorry, rather a director friend of mine couple years ago was helping her out on set and she said she said I heard her say this it was someone else she goes well this actor's worked with Martin Scorsese what do I have to say and I'm like what do you mean what do you have to, you're the director they want to hear what you have to say it doesn't they don't care that you are not Martin Scorsese they just need to know what you want so the most common excuse I hear from directors when it comes to this kind of subject is they always say that, oh, well, um, just cast the right person and that will solve your problems. Well, first of all, I think that's a terrible uh, philosophy to have because what that is saying is, well, I'm just gonna make sure that I'm gonna hire the right person so that they can do the hard work. That's taking all of the pressure off of you and throwing it on someone else so that you can just get out of actually preparing and learning how to do it. Um, Second of all, it's completely unrealistic. Do you know how many projects there are? When you're working on something, you are always going to have the one person that you didn't cast. The, 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 I was working on a commercial one time and uh, I picked this actor. I thought this actor was really good and, and they had this great presence to them. The client said, no, we want this other guy. And I was like, I don't think this guy has any experience experience I think he's kind of new and in his audition he didn't even read the lines they cast him because of his look so he gets to set so I have no choice this is the guy I have to work with um, he shows up and it sure enough it was his first time on set all right so now the philosophy of just cast the right people suddenly that's gone and now what are you going to do <laughs> well what are you going to do so I mean, the amount of films that are made where the investor says, hey, I'll give you the money for your movie, but I'm going to put my daughter in the lead. Has your daughter ever acted? Well, no, but you got a movie and you just have to make my daughter look good. Okay, so then how do you do it? How do you work with the actor? Oh, oh no, the actor, they're so scary. Um, actors are a different beast. They behave differently than everyone else on set. It's like the, they're like the popular kids in high school. 
they're, you know what I mean? And you're the nerd, the dork sitting there at the lunch table and, you know, whoever walks in and they're like, they're charming and everyone likes them and they're so pretty and everyone just wants to be, be them or be with them. That's, the actors are like that. That's why we always point the cameras at them, you know, because they have that charm and they have that look. So it can feel like you're the dork in high school who's got to go up and now, you want me to talk to this person and tell them what to do and they're going to listen? Why would they listen to me? Who am I? So that's the feeling oftentimes that you can get. Well, the reality is they're a person. And oftentimes I find that especially when they can be difficult to work with, it's because they're terrified. They're, they're just a person. They happen to be blessed with this beautiful outer shell a lot of the time. Um, but that doesn't mean they don't have insecurities as well. And the more they're left on their own without any direction, the more insecure they can feel. I mean, think about what that must be like. If you, you go out there and you do your scene and no one says anything to you and you have just bared your soul in some scene and no one's going good job or whatever, like that, that, that might even frustrate you, make you angry. Well, with good reason, right? I mean, it's like working for any boss and the boss is never telling you if you're doing good work, never encouraging you, never, I mean, it would be very frustrating place to be. So understanding that they are just a human and it's so funny because oftentimes I'll come up, actor will come up on, a, on set, I'll walk up to them and I can see them trembling. Like, if I'm, you know, and it's weird because I'll be at my director's chair and talking to the DP and we're doing this over here and da da da. And I'll look and there's the actor and they come in and oh, they're pretty. And, and I'll walk up and I see him kind of shaking. It's like, wow, I never saw that until I actually walked up and made that connection. So the lesson there is, I think, really making sure that they're recognized and that they are um, welcomed and feel safe. That is so important to do to. Because what we're asking of an actor, think about this, in the, in the grand scheme of a set, if you're a cinematographer, they're not, they are um, operating a piece of machinery. They're bringing their artistry to it, no question. They're creating emotion with this camera, painting with light, but they're not a, being vulnerable. They may be, even if they are scared, you're never gonna see it because they're behind the lens, you know? Same with a gaffer, same with a, sound guy and wardrobe person, they, I mean, if they're having a bad day, they could go and cry in their trailer, you know, behind closed doors. You're never gonna see that. An actor, they're, they're naked in front of the entire, and everything that you've been building for years with the script and everything is pointing at them. The camera is pointing, right? It's, that, that's a lot of stress on a person. So when you see them walk in, you're in high school, popular kid walks in, it can be the hardest thing to do to walk up and just say, hey, how you doing? Everything okay? Just to check in and make sure they're all right. That is a huge move and that will be a, think about it, making them feel welcome and comfortable. Even though it looks like they may not need that, do it anyway. That is a huge thing that will help you. Um, actors as well, simply, and this sounds so simple to say, but they just want to know what you want. Um, if you don't know what 
you want. Tell them. Um, because this is where you can invite them into your own space in storytelling. You can say, this is a goodbye scene, but I'm not sure it needs to be a weepy one, you know? And have a dialogue with them about it because that's where the fun can begin, where you're actually going, you're saying goodbye to someone who you've been best friends with for years, but they've always been mean to you. Would you really be crying as you say goodbye? Like what? If, and you can start to play. Well, what if it's triumphant goodbye? What if it's, and that's where it can be really fun. Now you're going to start to see the actor come alive because they are being allowed to play with you and you know you're on the same team. Um, that can really be a lot of fun. Um, I also think that as a, as a director, what we do, because you know, we've been thinking about this story for longer than everybody else on the team. Like, they're longer than the DP, the wardrobe person. We've been in, working with this story forever. Um, and so it's very easy to, and necessary in a lot of ways, to come in with your own ideas about how the scene should look. And yes, that's important, but... Um, you want to leave a little room for surprise. You want to leave a little room for them to bring what they have to the table. And you would do that, you do that in every other department, right? You, you're, you're gonna tell the DP, I just want this to look like, you know like the old films from the 70s, how they kind of had this rich color grain, I'm kind of looking for that kind of rich color grain in this kind of thing. And I'm thinking it's all shot on long lenses and the DP may go, yeah, but you know, in that time, those kind of lenses didn't exist. They did a lot of zooms instead of dollies. So what if we did it more zoomy lenses? Oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. How cool is that? That's you creating together. That's you allowing the DP to kind of bring his artistry or her artistry to the table. Do the same with an actor. I find it really enjoyable process when they come to set, they've been working their lines by themselves or with their husband or wife, or, or sometimes even just a recorder, they record it. They have a certain way of they wanna do the lines. Well, let them try it. I think it's, it, it can really create the fun sandbox when you're, you bring the two or three actors and have everyone pause the work, let the DP sit over here for a second and say, all right, let's just walk through it a second and see what's, what you got. Let me see what you got, let's just let's try it. Boom, walk through the scene. Um, now they feel like They've um, brought something to the table. You're able to like, okay, that's cool. Let's use this piece. But I think what we want to do is turn in this moment here and then, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you're, now you're working together. That really allows them a feeling like they've been heard. Um, and that will just you, can just, you can watch their anxiety just go down. Um, Another big thing to remember with actors is that when you're directing, this is super easy to do because you're being hit with a thousand questions a minute. So, I mean, it is, <laughs> you just did a take, the DP's like, I don't know, are you sure it's okay with this lens like this? Like, I think maybe we go to a tighter lens. Oh yeah, okay, good. Let's swap to the hundred and do the blah, blah, blah. Wardrobe person's like, I don't know, that shirt looks kind of wrinkly. And oh yeah, cool. Is that background prop looking okay? And you know, the, everyone's asking and the actor is standing there on their mark. Like, 
is that all right? Like, and you're, <laughs> all right, let's do it again. You totally forget that they're out there naked wondering why we're doing it again and it has nothing to do with them. So remembering, all right, we need to do one more. We got to make a change on our end. You're doing just fine. You just keep doing that exactly thing. You're right in the right zone, but we got to change something with the camera. We've hit a bobble on the cable, whatever it is. Like remembering that it's like you're spinning plates on the end of sticks and the actor's always on the end out here and they, you'd think that they'd be the easiest one to remember, but that's the first one usually most people forget is that they're just standing out there on their mark, you know, waiting for someone to talk to them. So just remembering to keep them engaged. I haven't forgotten about you. You're still there. It's all good. Let us fix something over here or whatever. Um, I think... Yeah, that, that happened a number of times on The Abandoned, by the way, where it was, The Abandoned is essentially one actor in front of the camera the whole time. And a lot of these same rules applied, right? So the, the premise of The Abandoned is a, a soldier who's hit with a bright light when he's in the middle of a firefight and he wakes up in this room with no doors, windows, exits of any kind. He can't get a hold of anybody. And the whole movie is him trying to escape this mystery room. Well, that means he's in the only guy in front of the camera the whole time. That's an incredible, vulnerable place to be. The, the actor, that is. Like, it was his first lead in a movie. And, and you know, that's, that's, a, that's terrifying. I, don't, I wouldn't want that position. Like, if I were a lead in a film, that's scary enough. But the fact that you're the only face we're going to see in this whole movie, oh my gosh. It was so important to take the time to make sure he was okay. Just to greet him every day on set. See, check in, see how he was feeling. You know, making sure he's comfortable. Go through it, let him try a couple takes to see what he, you know, all of these same kinds of things. And then with him specifically, there were a couple times where we would have some bumps in the road. And this, is, this leads me to a huge point. I made a couple mistakes. Um, there was a day where we were doing some stunt sequences. And, and ironically, the moment I'm talking about is in the trailer. There's a moment where the character realizes that something is very wrong. Oh no, the big discovery is being made. And he goes, oh my God. We were trying to do this very specific shot where the camera is gonna do this big dolly push and it it's tilting as it goes and he's, leaning on the wall a certain kind of way and I'm and the, and the way the film is put together we had this camera that could do this it's called a lambda head so we could tilt it and and the film plays with gravity a lot so we would always tilt the lambda head oftentimes to make it look like gravity was coming from the wrong direction but when you look at the lens and then you look at the stage it looks ridiculous because the he's oftentimes standing at a tilt and it's like I would start chuckling because it's like, I feel like I'm making Star Trek in 1960 because it's just like people throwing themselves around. So I'm just like kind of chuckling at the hilarity of it all. And I'm trying to get this very real moment for him. The cinematographer wasn't feeling well that day. And I'm trying to get this shot. We were all, this is like three quarters of the way through the shoot. We're all completely exhausted. And I'm giggling at the, monitor. Well, here's the actor. All he knows 
is that people are looking at him on screen and laughing, right? So understandably so, he was feeling extremely insecure and got mad at me. He said, dude, I feel like my ass is hanging in the wind out here, you know? And I, and I, I he goes, I think you're laughing at me. I'm like, oh, no. and, and I realized in that moment that of course he would feel that way. Of course he would think that. He has no idea the context of where I'm coming from, but the poor guy, you know, is understandably frustrated with me. So the point I'm trying to make is these things are going to happen. You know, miscommunications happen. You're going to snap sometimes. You're going to say something that you didn't mean that's going to hurt somebody's feelings. And it's so important to own up to it, to, you know, after that day, I actually had to, we had a, he and I had a long, long talk about like, hey man, I never meant to humiliate you. That is, was never my intent. And I did not mean for it to come out. I was laughing at something totally different. Just the comical nature of what we do for a living was really more of what I was thought was so funny at the time. Um, it was nothing to do with how stupid you looked. It, no, I would never laugh at something like that. Like I'm here to protect you. But I had to come forward. It was very difficult, you know. I had to tell him and be very honest and really protect him in that moment. This happens a lot. You know, if you find that you snapped at your actor some way because they irritated you and you did it in front of everybody, it's a good idea to pull them aside after that or the next day or whatever and say, hey, that was out of line. What that's going to do is, that's going to do this you're going to be as vulnerable as they're, we're asking them to be and it's going to put you on this even level with them where you're both, hey, we're human, we're trying to do this thing, there's a lot of pressure, the sun is going down, we're running out of time. I snapped. I'm sorry. Can we get past this and just, I'll try to do better next time? That's such a big, um, really, I think, important move to do to be willing to do that. Uh, that'll help you with actors quite a bit. Um, Usually, if you are that vulnerable with them, their performance will go up because they know that it's safe. They know that you're all working together trying to do the same kind of thing. And they once they are vulnerable, vulnerability with an actor is the secret sauce to good performance. Because that is what, this is why, this is what makes them different. This is what, when you see Denzel Washington performing, what you're seeing that's so incredible is he's so open. He's, you are seeing the inner workings, the inner terror, the little soul in there. That's what's so interesting. That's what makes us all lean into the screen. That's, that's what draws us in. It's these, it's these, well, people who behave like that generally become actors who are used to exposing themselves like that. that make, that's not normal. That's not what normal humans do. <laughs> that's what makes them so interesting to watch. That's what we need. But in order to see that, you have to make them feel safe, feel comfortable. They want to see vulnerability in you. It's a relationship. So, Why is it a bad decision to make a movie with one actor and one location? <laughs> Why is it a bad decision? Why is it a bad decision? You know, having one actor in a movie with one location, it's just such a great idea on paper. Because... You read that and you're like, wow, this could be so cheap to shoot, which is true. It's true. Now, I, I will say in the case of our film, you know, that is what it is. It's one actor 
in one location. And for the first several whatever weeks, when you're thinking about how cool it would be to do that, it's great. But then the realization starts to sink in that, huh, I have nothing to cut to. What are you gonna cut to when it's one actor? In our case, you don't ever get to see outside of the mystery room to see where he is. That's whole, the that's whole mystery of the movie is where is he? So it becomes incredibly complex to figure out how am I gonna block this scene when it's one guy on the phone <laughs> the whole time? Um, it becomes far more complicated than you ever thought possible because you're, now you're, you have to figure out how to capture scenes in a way that continues to be interesting, changing up the camera angle, keeping the camera moving, figuring out what the moments are. That's really difficult to do. Uh, and we really struggle with that. This, and it also becomes a real problem because in the editing room, if there's a scene that's dragging, how are you gonna cut around that? Because if your actor is walking around the room, uh, you can't exactly cut for time. Like if the scene is five minutes too long and he's doing a circle around the room, which we did a couple times. Well, if I cut five minutes out of the scene, suddenly he's on the other side of the room. He's on the wrong side of the room. So you're really stuck with that. So that was a, a big issue that I did not anticipate going in and how difficult that was gonna be. Uh, what saved us on that front. And if you are shooting a project that you have one subject in one very small location, insert shots is what's gonna save your life. Uh, now for us, if you can do this, it's great, but for us, we couldn't do it. You know, cut to the exterior of the house, or it's nightfall, or passage of time, or something. We didn't have that option. We were in the box, so we were stuck. Um, and I found like he's on the phone. So like having, we had to come up with different ways of him. Like sometimes he's got the phone like this, but then to take the phone and have him put it on speakerphone and put it on his chest helped. Sometimes he sets it on the ground. So we, we, we were, had to be really creative about how to um, <laughs> do it so that like, so then if the phone's on the ground and it's speakerphone, well, now you can just get a bunch of inserts of the phone here and, uh, now we can up cut to time and cut things out if we have to do it. That saved our butts. Um, the other real challenge when you have one actor like that in one location is that it can start to look visually very boring. Um, because one thing that we love about the movies is, especially is visual spectacle. And if it's one schlep, <laughs> on the screen talking the whole time. It's like, wow, how am I gonna make that interesting? So that also was a real challenge for us is how, how to keep this visually interesting. And one of the ways that we did that was we continually messed with the light. We tried to make the room like another character. So we would actually show shots of the room and then the room would shift in the way that the lighting was. So it actually starts from bright you know, we had, where we had a very soft overhead kind of light. It goes to the side. It has more of a nightmarish contrasty look. And the light kept, it moved from overhead. It started moving to the side. It kept getting lower and lower and lower throughout the film until he was with a flashlight. Uh, 
And actually the stuff where he's with the flashlight is what looks the best, but it continues to morph and change the look of your room so that it doesn't look same, 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 same the whole time. Uh, that was something that I never, never considered moving in. Um, the other real challenge is you really better have a good set. Um, ours was a gray box. Um, and it looked good. Like I, I thought that the production designer did a really good job, but man, you know, when you don't have any furniture, like keeping something in the background that looks good, ooh, that's tough. That was a, another significant challenge, which is why we decided to, to change up the lights and, and, and keep it looking different. We also um, changed the lensing a lot too. Like we, we mapped out different beats of the story and each chunk had a different name and look. So we would call it like, this is the nightmare beat. So in the nightmare beat, we shot with these kinds of lenses with the light looking this way and the framing looked like this so that it constantly morphed and changed. Cause boy, you will, you'll water torture your audience to death if, if you're not careful. Um, so if you're, yeah, if you're doing a movie like that, where it's one character, one room, I would really spend some time thinking about how to continue to change the look, you know? There's a movie called Buried, which is an excellent film with Ryan Gosling where he's in a coffin, the whole movie. And they did something really fascinating with that movie where they used a cell phone for light. They used a cell phone, a flashlight, a lighter, and green glow sticks. So each of those have a different color temperature. So it changes the feel of the room as the movie goes. That was very clever, very interesting way to keep it looking different. We also had a bunch of very creative ways of filming in a space like that. It's a coffin, you know, that's tough. But they would build long coffins, they would build deep coffins, some, some were bigger. They, they would also do really complex camera moves and that's something we did as well. We would map out very complex moves where the camera's going up and down and left and right and the camera's kind of dancing as opposed to just sitting in one location and the camera just boringly point, pointing at them. That, that'll kill you if you don't. You gotta be very careful um, if you're faced with that. So we also, do, uh, I think the other thing that really helped us was sound. Um, and this is the constant thing I find is overlooked in indie film is the importance of sound. And I'm not talking about mic sound, I'm talking about sound design. We, it, it helped the world feel bigger by the way it sounded and adding weight to this one room and make it like, how does a threatening room sound? Now that will really, it, it can increase your production value especially if it made, we made it sound like there was other machinery outside of the room. Uh, that, that took a lot of work to do, but um, without that, you know, I didn't anticipate going in how much work that was actually gonna be. That took months and months and months of, I did a lot of the sound design on it. So months of figuring out how to create a room that feels like it's a threat just auditorily, you know? Um, yeah, a lot of lessons learned on that. A lot of lessons learned. And I I think finally the last thing, 
for us, we had a, another character on the phone. Phone conversations are really interesting to, to shoot because it is, it's exactly, it's one actor, blah, 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 blah. And you can't see that if you're not shooting the other end of the conversation, it's just what's on their face. Well, there's a number of ways to do that. I think a lot of times they'll have someone off camera reading the lines to them who's not an actor. Now that is a often, I know I get for convenience, that's oftentimes what happens, but it's really doesn't do the actor any favors. I was really worried about that with ours, with our film, because our actor really needed to be vulnerable and terrified. And if we had some scripty, <laughs> Are you scared in the room? I'm scared. You know, like it's just not gonna work. How's an actress supposed to get into character when you're the person reading the script is just some person who's just there drinking their coffee and in their Ugg boots? Like that's just not gonna work. So I had the actor on set, the other actor on set. We actually built her her own little offstage box of her own because she's in our story. She's in claiming to be in a, in a similar space. So we. We tried to make her feel just like that. What that did was it, it put them both in a vulnerable position. And now they can hear each other actually on set as opposed to just over the, over the phone. And they were able to actually physically connect and talk and work the scenes out together. That was a huge help to us. It also allowed for improvisation. Um, each of them had their own mics. And so now they're able to explore the scene together. And that helped us a ton, a ton. So if, yeah, if you're doing a project like that, I, I would highly recommend exploring some of those options. Um, and if it's one character on screen really paying attention to how difficult it's gonna be for them to, to do it, the, the kind of uh, accommodations you're gonna have to do to make them comfortable, because that's that's becomes what it's all about, because they're the only one you're gonna see. And so then are you dealing with almost two arcs because you have the arc of the main character, but then you have the arc of the relationship? Yeah. So now you're working with kind of two, you, you have the beginning, I mean, not, I don't want to give away too much, and, 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 but, but I really felt that, that they were connected and that they had a bond. Yeah. Um, without, again, giving, but, yes. but I was impressed at their conversations with each other. Yeah, that's exactly right. That there is an arc in the course of our story. There is, I mean, as all stories should have an arc with the characters. Now, what's interesting about the behind the scenes of that, so the two actors didn't really know each other before this whole thing began. They kind of met each other very quickly before the start of filming. So there really was no relationship. In the course of filming, my relationship with both of them was really key. So oftentimes, this is gonna sound really dorky, but oftentimes, you know, at the beginning of a shot and it's him alone in this big room, especially when we're doing the early reveals and the terrified look, I'd hold his hand, you know, before with the as the camera's getting, all right, everybody roll camera, roll sound, you're quiet on set, take one, and I just stay there with him, like let him know you're not alone, I'm right here, got you, got you. All right, you ready, ready to do this? Yeah, ready, ready, ready. And then I'll back off and then let him do the scene. That um, eased off as we, as we went and as she slowly became part of his world because the two characters meet essentially on the phone and they get to know each other as the story grows. 
she essentially came in and replaced me. So I was able to back away slightly as the director and then she was able to come in and, and oftentimes would hold his hand during scenes, especially when there was emotional scenes or, and I would like try things with them because it was all about the connection, even though it's only on the phone, but I would say things like, um, tell each other a secret that none of us can hear. Like we'll all turn the mics off and just tell each other something that no one else knows. And it's, it's such an interesting place to be, especially as a director, because you see them say something and then they start laughing or something like that. And it's like, oh, what, did they, what did you say? It's not for me to know. Like that's only between them. That's something that the two of them can share, but that really went whoop and, and uh, pulled them together. And then as the scenes went, oftentimes I would let them just improv and I would tell her, you know, what do you really want to ask him? You know, what, what do you really want to know? And she'd go, yeah, boom. And, she, and we'd be recording and just boom, she'd just go right into something and try stuff. That was it such an interesting, you know, we were all kind of crossing paths and I'm pulling away while she's coming in. It was, it was a very, um, very cool spot to be. What are the steps to developing and building a character? Yeah, developing characters. So that's, I think some people have a easier time with that than others. So I learned this from uh, actually a guest that you had a, on your sh uh, show, Corey Mandel, like where he, he actually in one of his interviews, ironically said that there are generally, as a general rule, two kinds of writers. There are intuitive writers who see characters very clearly in three dimensions and they just bleed on the page and that kind of thing. And then there are more conceptual writers who are very good at the structure part. Uh, personally, I gravitate more towards the intuitive side. So like, and this comes as a director because I, when I'm working with actors, I, I can very quickly pivot into deep backstories and things like that. So for me, how do I create characters? It, it's a little bit of an easier task for me, but there is a process that I generally go through. Um, that starts with me asking like some questions like, what is the one thing my character would never do? Now, that's an interesting question to ask about a character, but it can tell you a lot about who they are. So what would my character never do? Well, they would never, I don't know, quit. Whenever would never quit. Okay. Well, that, that automatically, that question can open up a huge, rich story about why wouldn't they ever, what is it about quitting that's so pivotal to their core? Um, you can also ask, and I'll do this, what is one thing they would never say? They may never say, I hate you, or whatever. Uh, now, of course, you know, in the storytelling realm, you would now have to make them do those things. <laughs> now, you know, and of course, what would they never say? They would never say, I hate you. Well, why wouldn't they ever say that? Like, what is it about that word that means so much to them that they would never actually say, I hate you to another person? It's a way of unlocking um, certain kinds of things. So that's usually the first step in, in that. And then coming up with what is your character's major focus, not just as a, as a story, but in their life. What is it that they're aiming for overall? Like for example, I'm working on a pilot right now and I'm doing a lot of work on realizing what is this main character's drive. And this is, the, he's an interesting one because his drive is to escape his past, right? 
because he had a very abusive past and um, and he is pushing and driving and running. He's an ex- adrenaline junkie. He's like pushing the edge all the time, looking for the next thrill. His drive isn't the next thrill. His drive is to escape. So just going through and understanding what that is really also tells you a lot. Um, so that's usually where it begins for me. I'll, I'll do this little checklist. And then what I like to do <laughs> in my perfect designing world, I'll, you know, I, I'm a morning time writer, so I'll get up and do my morning routine. I'll take my little hourglass and I'll flip it upside down. I'll start the hour clock, turn off the phone, and I'll start brain dumping. I really like the process of just like uh, just furiously letting my keys go on the keyboard or notebook too. It's a different method, but it's sometimes fun to just like explore who they are. What if uh, Izzy is just someone who just never could quite find the right one? Just, just she just tossed and turned her whole life, and just start exploring um, the path as it were, of this character and just digging into their lives and never correcting anything, but just like going down and even as I'm writing, she's someone that I can never find love. No, that doesn't feel quite right. She's someone that did find love. She found love early on, but he, you know, he ended up leaving her for someone else. And now she's kind of like, you know what I mean? Like it's this, it's complete immersive exploration into my character and there's no judgment there's no wrong stories uh, wrong choices here i can actually go back and edit in real time but i don't erase anything that's on the page i just put it all down there there's something very therapeutic and really fun in the play of that Um, i like to i will in life um as i i could be at the grocery store and i'll hear an interesting conversation um, like here's a perfect example. I was in a sandwich shop one time and I'm ordering a sandwich and the guy's like, so, you know, what, what do you want? I'm like, uh, oh, you know, maybe I'll take the BLT. Okay, cool. What kind of bread do you want? And I'm looking at the, all the breads and it's this really good bakery. It's this very, it's a great sandwich shop. And I'm going, um, well, you got a bunch of different kinds of breads here. I've never, I don't even recognize. What do you recommend? And he goes, oh, all our bread, they're made right here in the shop. Like, you, you, there is no wrong choice. I said, oh, so you're a sandwich agnostic then. And he goes, you know who wasn't an agnostic? And I thought, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't say it. Don't say it. He goes, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and it was so funny to me that he would say it. Like, he just basically took my joke that I thought was kind of funny and just flushed it down the toilet because clearly this guy's super, super religious. Well... There's a great character for a story. Someone who is so religious that they just, that it, everything, it diffuses the fun out of everything. I, I have a little note, I use an Evernote in, on my phone and I'll like write that stuff down. I'm like, ooh, that's an interesting character. Or the, I used to know another guy who would always whistle and the more stressful things got, he would always. <laughs> that's such a great little quirk. So I will keep track of these things and as I'm exploring what the character can do when it comes to quirks and things, sometimes I'll look through all this list of things and go, oh yeah, this one would really fit. Let me carve this into this person. Um, it's helpful too to like take in the whole person. Like what, how tall are they? How big are they? Um, 
are they a, are they a ginger or are they bald or are they you know like just to really kind of be have fun with and and sometimes that involves like um just doing random google searches or even instagram like how you can on instagram you can hit the little magnifying glass thing and it'll just pop up this random feed of things the, you'll you'll be scrolling through and sometimes you'll see just someone with the most interesting look they'll have glasses with that are really thick black frames and their hair is a certain way and they have black fingernails oh there's an interesting looking person so that's a really helpful way it's just like cataloging all these different people types that are out there and random quirks that's super helpful when it comes to creating characters um, as it goes and as it develops what I'll need to do is I, I, I really like knowing their inner cores, their inner, what makes them tick. What do they believe? What are they, going back to the, what do they struggle with? Where are they going in life? Um, I like to get more specific about that as I develop them in the story, that kind of thing. But that's generally the process. I, I know it's not a one, two, three step, but that's, that's usually what I'll do and do with it as I go. Is there a fictional character that you know you talked about earlier? That one movie that we all see that if we've come here to LA that we've like I want I should have been part of that and that's what I want to recreate. Is there a character or two where you felt that like that's the character? I don't care Ooh. if I'm playing it or filming it or writing it. That's the character. Well, I, I can think of a movie that really hit me. You know, a Close Encounters of the Third Kind was one that really just blew my imagination. Um, the, especially the little kid when he's because I was really little when that movie was out but the the little kid who was searching for UFOs like boy I really identified with that that one and and ironically around the same time was when the first Star Wars came out and Empire I always saw myself as C-3PO I, that's such a strange one like no one identifies as C-3PO but because my brother was shorter than me and he was always the annoying little brother. Like he was R2D2 and I was C3PO. So like they're such unique characters. That's what they're the little um antagonistic connection very much reminded me of me and my brother. And I I sort of loved loved that. Uh, and the idea of figuring out how to create that was really, really fun, especially as a kid to think about that. Uh, yeah. Indiana Jones is another one that ah, he's such a cool character and how do you make that and that would definitely be one as a kid I'm definitely like oh man I would give anything to be a part of the creation of a process like that you know the man of adventure and and ah so good with the comedic stuff and ah it's so good it's so good it's so good it's just yeah would you rather make a story about good versus evil or good versus good? Oh, I I think probably good versus evil. That's always a, it's just such a fun. I mean, that, my initial gut reaction is making a story of good versus evil. I mean, that is, that's like so steeped in our society as humans. I mean, you know, warring with the gods, you know, way back in the day, those are the stories we were coming up with. So I think that's just ingrained in our culture. Excuse me, ingrained in our culture. Um, so I immediately gravitate towards that. And when I think of stories of good versus evil, they always sound epic. It's 
So like making these big fantasy epics is very exciting. But that said, good versus good is something that's more um, fascinating from a character perspective. And I think it's more challenging to write stuff like that, you know? Good versus evil is a lot easier to write because it's the villain who wants to take over world domination or something like that, you know? That's an easy thing to go up against, but if it's a good versus good, I want custody for the, of the kids, husband and wife getting a divorce. They're both good people. Each one wants the child and they're both good people. Ooh, that's, a, that's much more, that is very interesting to write. It's very, it requires a lot more of you, I think, as a storyteller to actually pull a story like that off because now you, you're trying to put the audience in a position of which one do I root for? That's really a challenge in a great way. Um, I still think I would normally gravitate towards good versus evil because it's just so great, you know, you know, to, to fight the villain or Darth Vader or whatever it is. Ironically, Darth Vader becomes a good guy at the end, <laughs> but uh, uh, that I, I, I tend to gravitate towards stories more like that. But I think as I get older, I do like more of the nuanced, um, complex human conflicts. You know, it just requires more of you to write it. It's more of a challenge. You talked about good versus good. Well, you could say Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah. That was mm -hmm. good versus good. And that was an extremely compelling film. Yeah. And and difficult to watch and, and want to root for, I don't know, either mm -hmm. side. But in terms of um, good versus evil, it seems like the quote unquote evil always thinks that they're good. Yeah. So it, it could initially be a story of, you know, someone who thinks they're actually doing the right thing. It's true. And um, which those kinds of stories, if you're making good versus evil, it it is the back for lack of a better term, the lazier writing approach to just make them evil for the sake of being evil. That is a I guess you can make it easier to hate or whatever. They're just villains for the sake. Of, you see bad action movies like this. Well, bad movies in general are like this, but. I mean, any writing class will tell you that that's not the best way to make a villain. It's much better when they, because think of it in life, no one actually thinks they're evil. No, I don't even think Hitler thought, he, Hitler actually thought he was doing the world a favor, right? Yeah. So if you want to make it compelling, I mean, I did a, my previous feature before um, Abandon was about angels and demons. And we wrote all the demons in a way that they actually thought they were doing good. So that was a very interesting writing challenge to how do you make something as evil as that justified in their actions? How do they actually justify what they do? It, it, it really pushes you. Um, and it makes it, it pulls you in a lot more as an audience, I think. Uh, it demands a lot more maturity from you as the artist. Because you can just think about it from the actor perspective too. Instead of this mustache twirling, you know, if you go to the actor and say, I, I want you to be the mustache twirling villain versus I want you to, they're trying to take away your home. That's how you see this. Uh, 
you'll see such a much deeper performance from your actor that will in the end be more terrifying. Um, I've had moments with actors where I will tell them, you're, you're doing something really heinous here, but you're doing it because you are personally offended by what they did to you. Like it actually hurts you. It makes you even sad and you'll have the, and they'll do this performance almost with tears in their eyes, but it makes it so much more terrifying because you could tell how deeply they feel. Ooh, love that. <laughs> I love that. So is that good versus good? I don't know. It depends on the perspective of the uh, character, I guess, you know, but it's definitely a much more, I answered your question and now I'm changing my mind as I'm answering it because I think that a good versus good, if you, if you look at it from the perspective of the character, that's what the best stories are. Up for debate. Yes. Up for debate. Leave your comments below. <laughs> <laughs> How do you write a great scene? How do you write a great, you know, writing a great scene is, it is one of the strangely hardest things you can do. I think the writing piece of all the stuff we have to do in filmmaking is the hardest part. That, because that's where it all begins. That's the foundation that your entire house is built on. And when you're building this house, the easiest thing to do is you're, you get your house done and you're looking at it and you're like, it, it, something looks off. It doesn't look level. And you'll get notes and they'll, the notes will come back and say, yeah, it's probably because your house is red. If you paint it green, it might not look off. So you'll paint it green and it's still off, but it's because the foundation isn't right. And the foundation of scene work is, is really amazingly hard to do. Amazingly hard to do. Um, what I've learned, especially over the last few years in depth, is how tricky it is to come up with scenes that work. And I think the best way you can learn this is through watching plays. Plays, now every, uh, not every filmmaker, but a lot of the filmmakers I talk to they always say, I, I just can't write small. I just can't write simple. Uh, <laughs> I get that because, oh, I want to go into outer space and fly a ship around and I want a planet to explode. Well, that's great. I do too. But what that can be, it can be the filmmaker waving their arms in front of the camera saying, I don't have a story. So I'm going to distract you with all of these explosions so that you... Forget the fact that, well, there actually really isn't a very good foundation. The whole house is still leaning to the left because you never figured out how to write a good scene. It comes down to these very simple nuts and bolts. So if you watch a play, you're watching scenes on the most basic level and you're looking at generally one or two characters or two or five characters or something talking on a stage and you're pulled in. How are they doing that? What is the magic sauce that's making all that that scene work, it reminds me of, and I think that those filmmakers, myself included, if they want to get better at this, don't start by making scenes with explosions, start by making scenes that are simple, two people in one room. This is, I had a friend of mine that used to teach like a, a summer camp for drummer, like a music, work in a musician's camp. He was a drummer, he would teach all the drummer kids. 
And he said the first thing he would always do on day one is all the kids would come in with all their drum sets and they would set up these elaborate, you know, multiple toms and snares and these big giant sets. And he'd, he would let them get all set up and then he'd go, okay, I want you to take apart your drum sets and only give yourself one kick, one snare, and one cymbal. And the kids panicked because they suddenly all their tools were taken from them. And they had to learn how to get good at making music with just a kick, snare, and a Ooh, that's tough. Anybody can sound great with two kick drums, but do it with just those three little cymbals. Same with scene work. So how do you make a good scene work? Well, it's so simple, yet it seems to be lost on a vast majority of people. You have to be... The number one thing I think when it comes to scene work is clarity of goals and stakes. Clarity. That means knowing exactly... I just had a... Um, this is so interesting. I just had a, a, a script consultant take a look at one of my scripts. He said to me, because what do you think you're best at in your writing? I said, I think I'm pretty good at writing action. When people read my scripts, they say um, the action is like usually really compelling and, and like, he goes, what do you think you struggle with the most? I said, well, you know, probably like the, all the things in between, the little connector pieces and the overarching, like sometimes scene work and stuff like that, like exactly what we're talking about. He goes, you know why? You know why they say that? I'm like, no, I don't. He goes, because in action scenes, it's very clear what the character wants. They're trying to win the motorcycle race or whatever, right? So it's super easy to write this compelling action scene because I got to get over the finish line before the other guy does. Very clear goal. Very clear stakes. I don't want to lose the race. So it's a, it's a really compelling scene. And he goes, that's why your action scenes are selling better. It's not because you're magical with words. It's because me as an audience member understands what he wants. When it's just husband and wife talking about getting, going shopping, it's just like, because there's just nothing there. So this is super common. And then we hear, to make all this more difficult, we, we are told, I don't know who tells us this, I don't know where this comes from, but um, on the nose writing, right, is considered bad writing. Well, what, 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 why is that considered bad writing? Have you ever wondered that? Why, who, who, I don't know who initially said this, but on, on, they say that on the nose writing, and when I say on the nose, I mean clarity, what does your character want? And where is he going? What, and what is at stake if he doesn't get it? Well, in order to understand what that is, that means being on the nose and very clear. I really want to get out of this house. Okay. But we're told, we're, we're, there's somehow in our filmmaking society, we're told that on the nose writing is bad. Well, why is that? Why, why who, who initially said that that was a thing? I'm not sure who said it, but in some ways, it doesn't let the audience really guess and the relationship unfold. It's too, it's just, there's no mystery to yeah, it. Yeah. You need subtext. Right, yes, we, we want this, we want it to be, um, we, are, we, want to, <laughs> we want to be so clever about making them figure it out, right? Well, the thing is, that's, and I, and I totally get that because I'm totally wired the same way. Like, I don't, I want to be, 
cl more clever about the way to reveal what the character wants. But on the nose writing, what makes it that is, is or makes it feel that way. Because when you see well done scenes, when you see a scene that just wraps you in and pulls you right along, the writing is pretty on the nose. But they are essentially giving us what makes things feel on the nose is when, I'll give you an example. You know, you see an action, like a bad action movie. And at the very beginning of the action movie, usually there's a scene like, we gotta go in and kill that guy because he killed my sister and I'm gonna take revenge on the blah, blah, blah. And it's this long drawn out like setup of, okay, we gotta go kill the bad guy because he killed my sister. And it, it feels really clunky and on the nose. The reason why is because we didn't ask for that information. That's what makes it feel on the nose. As an audience member, you're like, you're, you're handing me all of this stuff I didn't need. But if you hand it to me in a way that makes me go, what is his name? Then reveal it, it's on the nose, but it's when I ask for it. Well, what is it about this guy that bothers him? What grievance did this villain do that makes it so bad? Oh, killed his sister. You're, you're revealing it at the right time. That is a real trick when it comes to putting a scene together properly. Um, but where it starts is, it starts with, I think, not writing in final draft. It starts with very clear outlines and um, mapping what you want. So, and this is where there's a simple goal and stake. So what I mean by that, if you don't know what that means, that means like, I want to get out of the house. But the thing that's often missed is what are the stakes of that? What happens if he doesn't get that or she, right? What happens if I don't get out of the house? Well, if it's just, I'm going to be bored, well, it's going to be really hard for me to get behind that as a story. You have to come up with a way to make that so terrifying if they don't actually get there. Um, if the house is on fire, I'm going to get third degree burns if I don't get out of the house. Now that stakes. You know, if the house has ghosts in it, you know, now there's a reason to get out of the house. Like that, you're, you're tying stakes to it. Um, but that's just the beginning because you also need someone against those stakes and goals, usually with their own stakes and goals attached to them. And if you really want to make a scene work, you got to come up with a way to put those two things against each other. So I want to get out of the house, but character B wants me to go upstairs. That's a conflict. And if me going upstairs means, I don't know, I'm just, I'm thinking off the cuff here, but like if I want to get out of the house because I don't know why I'm going so dark with this, but if there's a demon that's trying to take my soul, <laughs> right? So, okay, let's just say that's the story. There's a demon that wants to take my soul and he's, ah, and I gotta get out of the house. Well, that's huge stakes, oh my gosh. Character B walks in and says, I need you to go upstairs. Okay, so, so now for me, like that's a huge stake. Oh, there's no way I'm doing that. But for them, okay, let's imagine there's a bigger threat outside that the outside person sees, like maybe there's zombies outside. 
And if you go outside, you're going to die. So we need everyone to go upstairs. Now you have a conflict. So that's a scene that's, that's two characters that have two different goals and they're, they're running into each other. I need to get out of the house. The other one's going, no, you need to go upstairs. Well, if I stay in the house, my soul is going to get taken by this demon. But if you go outside, you're going to get eaten by the zombies. Well, someone's going to, someone needs, should win, right? That's what makes a compelling conflict. Now, I went way monster movie to horror movie or whatever with that idea. But that is essentially the essence of what makes a great scene. Taking two characters that each have differing goals and aligning them so that they are hitting each other. Um, Probably a better example would be someone needs to get into the um, bank vault, right? I need to get in there. Okay, I'm writing the scene. I need to come up with a way. That's my goal. I have to get in the bank vault and, I don't know, get my marriage certificate out of it. That's the, I need my marriage certificate. I need to go in there and I need to get it. I'm the only one with a key. You know how it works at the bank. Safe deposit box. Safe, yeah. uh, <laughs> safe, safe deposit box. My marriage certificate's in there. I've got the key. It's handcuffed to my wrist. I have to be the one to go in and unlock it. And of course, you've got to have the other. Usually, it's two people that unlocks the thing together. You know how it works at the bank. Let's say that's your goal. Okay. That makes sense. Well, how, am I, how do I make this goal exciting? Well, we need to create someone with opposition. All right. But we could put a security guard there. Now, I think most people, when they would write a scene like that, we can make a security guard there that doesn't want to let them in. Mm. Okay, so the security guard's there. He doesn't want to let them in the room. And you could just, oh, he's just lazy and he doesn't want to get off his chair and open the door. I think, does that, do you, would you think that that is a scene that could work? And they begin in this argument about how he's just lazy and he just likes his chair. He just wants to stay there. Do you think that would be a scene that would work? Only if I discover later that actually he's part of a larger ring <laughs> that's stolen these marriage certificates <laughs> and he's selling them on the dark web. True. If you so he seems yeah, he seems lazy and he seems innocent enough, but actually no, because your certificate is actually not in there anymore. Oh that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't want you to know that. So I guess if he's just lazy, uh, I need a good reason why he's lazy. Yeah, right. Okay, so a yeah. lot of times you'll see scenes like this where it's like, I need to get in there to get my thing out of the drawer. Well, and the other person just doesn't want to do it. Well, and then they break into this argument. So this is very common. You'll see this kind of scene all the time. And there's two people in this argument. But what's missing there are stakes for both of them, number one. And the security guard has no goal. Like he's not really, he's just resistance. He's not, he's not an antagonist necessarily. So what that's doing is it's diffusing your scene. It's gonna help drag it down. Instead, what you could do is you could make a scenario where the security guard has an extremely jealous wife who thinks he's cheating on her and he, and she think, you know, he's supposed to stay at his desk and just like let people into the room you know, he tells her over and over, I got to go in there and unlock both doors. No, I swear, when all the pretty girls show up, you go inside and you go in there with them because you want to flirt. And you go in there with one more girl and I'm going to leave you. And I'm going to sit here in the lobby and watch and make sure that you don't. Now you got a conflict. 
He's sitting there going, I can't open, I can't let you in there. I can't do it or my wife is going to leave me. And, and the other character is now getting in. Now you have two characters with two separate goals that are slamming into each other. This is very, very, um, it sounds so simple to do, but this is where it's important to like really outline and put on a, I like putting it on a big whiteboard, you know, your directions that your characters are going and make them go into each other. And then more importantly, attach stakes to each one of them. If I don't get into that safe deposit box to get the whatever marriage certificate. And if I don't get that, I can't prove that I was, I'll lose my inheritance if I can't show that I, whatever. Okay. Now you have stakes and then you put the security guard where his marriage is going to fall apart. If he lets you in great. You can almost feel the tension go up. You can feel it on set too. When you have a scene that has these kinds of things attached to it, the actors relish it. Like they can immediately, you feel it come alive. You can feel it, right? How you can just suddenly the tension goes up. You haven't even started working on escalations and how you, you suddenly amp up the tension in a scene like that or adding a ticking, you know, it's 4.59 and it closes at five. We haven't even gotten there yet. It's just two characters with goals now it gets a lot easier to, to really make a scene work. That's where it always begins. That's, that's the initial building blocks. Did you see uh, Come Back to the Five and Dime, uh, Jimmy Dean, the Robert Altman? It's based on a play. It's from 1982 or oh. something. So it's just one room. It's a Woolworth in like Marfa, Texas. And all the characters, it's, it's all women, uh, except for one man. And he's in and out. It's kind of a memory. And... Uh, the, just the subtleties that it's not on the nose, but you learn about the characters. Then you learn about their petty gripes and jealousies with one another. You learn about the small town gossip. All of it is slowly revealed until the real story finally comes out. Oh, but it, it, it's so excellent and you're just there riveted and it's one location. Just that this Woolworth. Yeah. Writing scenes in one location is, uh, especially simple ones, with just character driven, with no fancy tricks, it is the most challenging thing. But I do believe that that's where all scenes should begin. Um, no matter if they're in space or some sci-fi time travel epic or not, because that's a foundation, right? Now, if you never go into outer space or back in time and you stay in the room with the Woolworths, you don't have any way to wave your hands around to distract the audience that you have nothing. Does that make sense? Like, so I think that if you really want to create more complex sci-fi stories, you need to really get good, really good at writing those simple. Start writing scenes with two characters. Each of them has something that they want. Only one of them can win. Both of them can lose. Write a scene like that that's a page turner and you're going to be amazing at writing the big space opera. Like, it's hard to do, but it's, that's so, if you want to make it as a screenwriter, that's, you have to master that. How hard is it to write an emotional scene? For me personally, well, I should say for me personally, it's not as hard and I only say that because I tend to be very intuitive in my writing process and a lot of times when I'm writing I'm feeling it a lot more than other people are. Um, that, as an intuitive kind of person I just have very deep emotions and they just come out really easily and it's very easy to spill it on the page. 
But the challenge for me is actually getting the audience to feel the same way. So I was about to say, unfortunately, uh, it, it comes down to structure is really, if you really want to pull out emotion, it's, it has less to do with depth as it has to do with the structure of your scene. Because the structure is what's going to, the structure is your frame of your house, but the emotion is the furniture within it. So without that structure of the house, you're just going to have furniture sitting in the middle of a field. It's just going to feel weird. It's going to, even if the actor's bringing it, it's still going to be kind of in this weird nebulous space. It's not really much of anything, but with the structure, it's what contains everything. It's super vital. It, it get back, gets back to the same kind of stuff we were just talking about, about the importance of goals and stakes and all kinds of things like that. Like, if you wanna, I could, re, I could very easily write out an emotional scene about someone who lost their father. Like, you know, you could have someone, oh, I miss dad and he passed away, you know. And if you just tuned in and watched the one scene and the, and the actress does a great performance, you know, pulling that out, yeah, it might be compelling, but it's not going to have the impact that you, th that you want it to have unless you understand more about why dad's loss was so important, right? Where, what that relationship was like. That's all, that's all the structure of backstory and context that you need to set up so that when we get to emotional scene, it's paying off in the way that you mean for it to. Otherwise, it's just one character spouting off and just kind of being emotional. Um, you know, Denzel Washington can pull that off. <laughs> but even then, if it doesn't have a forward direction to it, um, it's just not gonna land the way you hope. And this happens a lot as in my personal journey as a screenwriter where I'm just like so feeling these scenes that I've written and then other people read it and go, eh, yeah, it just wasn't quite landing. Ah, and it's so, yeah, what? The guy's pouring his heart out on paper. Yeah, it's because there's, the guy's, all he's doing is pouring his heart out on paper without going anywhere. He's just wallowing and there's no point. There's no direction. There's, there's you know, it, it's so much more, you know, in the movie Breaking Bad, or movie, the pilot episode of Breaking Bad, there's a fantastic scene in there where Walter White, if you've seen this show, he, he starts off as this very vanilla, spineless guy. And you watch him take this journey where you learn that he's got cancer, he's going to die. Um, he realizes his life is over. He realizes he's got no savings to save his family. And then through all this, he's realizing, you know, he's a chemistry teacher and he knows about science and all this stuff. Um, and he sees that criminals who sell meth make a lot of money. And he sees, ooh, there's a way for me to make a lot of money, right? So you're just watching his journey, going through all these steps. And there's this great scene right after he's bought all the equipment, he's decided he's gonna cook meth. And he's this very introverted character and Jesse comes up to him and says, you know, this isn't how I remember you at all. Like, like at all. Like you, you were this kind of douche, like the just this lame teacher that just didn't seem like he cared about anything. And all of a sudden you just have this passion. What is it? 
what happened. And I think the performance of this scene was very powerful. Walter White looks at him and he says, I'm awake. It's so simple, but it carries so much of a punch because you had all of this really good setup framework of his life and you watch how his life is like, teak, things are falling apart, he's dying, he's not gonna leave anything in this world. And you see him wake up and it carries the emotional impact because we saw it, we experienced it all with him and then boom, you're hit with it right in that scene. I, I, that's what makes emotional scenes work. Now, is it easy to do? I don't think it's easy to do. I think it takes a lot of practice and hard work. Um, uh, but now, <laughs> if someone else could do all that work for me and set all that up and then write in the emotional scene by itself, it's super easy for me because I think that way. But um, yeah, the challenge is, is all the context. So an emotional scene where you're just like bleeding in front of the audience mm -hmm. doesn't work unless there's a setup. I mean, it can work. I just don't think it's, it's not gonna carry the same punch that you want it to unless they know why they're feeling this way. Why this is such a big moment. If, I mean, and think of it like if, if there is a character that you're following in a movie or show and all they do is that, they're constantly emotional, it's just a, it's a chore to watch. You don't wanna see it. It's too much. Have you ever seen a movie that's just so sad and such a drag that you don't actually wanna watch it again? Yeah. Um, that's the kind of feeling you're going to get. You kind of need the journey. You need the setup. You need the context. You need the goal, the stakes, and all that to, so that once that character does get to that emotional break, you're in, you're, you want, you're on the journey right with them. Right. So, yes, it can be powerful on its own. And those are the, the clips we see from the Oscars. The best, you know, first nominee for Academy Award is... Jared Leto, and then you see the emotional scene. <laughs> uh, that's fine for a minute, but it's not gonna carry the punch unless you see the whole thing, I don't think. Did you watch The Queen's Gambit? Yeah. Excellent, did you like it? Yes, very much. And, and the, what I took from that is that her, her circumstances were showing us this buildup, but did she really have any full did she ever feel sorry for herself? It felt like she didn't, and she just turned it all into the chess matches. That's where she took any type yeah. of self-pity or whatever, mm -hmm. was beating you know, whoever it was that she wanted to beat. That's a good point, that's a good point. It's, I actually think it's hard to watch shows where characters feel sorry for themselves. You know, it's, it, they're out there. I can't think of one an example off the top of my head, but I think it's hard, harder to watch. You want to see a character take their terrible background and turn it into something, make it their power. That's what, that's exciting to watch. Like the Queen's Gambit, this little girl raised an orphan, suddenly becomes a chess genius. Oh, I'm in, you know, like that's awesome. Like, cause she, she's the, it's a classic underdog story. Sure. If, sure. Uh, you know, if Rocky all did, did nothing but whine about his poor background and how he never got a chance as a boxer and that's the end that would be hard to watch but you know he he goes the distance with apollo creed and we're like yeah so yeah what was one of the first films to make you cry oh you know i what the first film that made me cry I tell you the one that had the biggest impact on me. This is such a weird one, but it was The Prince of Tides. 
<laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen that film, but it is a gut wrencher. I'm sure that I got emotional in films prior to that, but that one for some reason really stands out because it deals with this guy kind of coming to terms with his very, very um, tragic past. And I will say that for me, emotions were always very much a struggle because they, I always looked at them as something that was weak, which is a problem for a director, you know, and someone who tells stories. Uh, in my household growing up, showing the showing of vulnerability and emotion was dangerous. It's just not something that you could do. Um, and, and I do remember as I watched films, getting pulled in emotionally, whether it was sadness, tears, or um, terror, those two deep vulnerability things were stuff that I tried not to show and tried very hard to fight. It's part of what made me a filmmaker because when I would feel terrified or really sad, I would pull myself out and look at the way the film was constructed. Started looking at oh let me oh it's just an actor sitting there and there's a director talking to them and we'll look at the interesting lighting you know I would purposely start to deconstruct the film to pull myself out of the entire experience. Um, it took me many many years to really become comfortable with just my own emotions. <clears throat> I don't know why Prince of Tides stands. If you've ever seen that film, it's a very it's Barbra Streisand and Nick Nolte and. He's this kind of big man and he's, uh, he ends up like just sobbing and breaking down. That film really hit me hard because I think it, you know, it's very similar to my own life. That's probably why it stands out to me so much. It's one that just boom. But <clears throat> emotions are very key to the, the business that we're in. And I think it's really important to be comfortable with that, especially as a director. Because I need to be, I'm asking actors to do that. And I want to be pulled in by that, right? I'm asking audiences to be pulled in by those same emotions. Well, then what am I doing? Try to fight it all the time and act like I don't feel anything. I, maybe I'm in the wrong business if that's how I'm approaching all of this. Learning how to be okay with expressing emotions. I mean, it's taken me a long time, but I've gotten to a point now where I can be on set talking to an actor and they're just dumping out, you know, how they feel. And it's very, they're in this very broken place. We're trying to capture that. And I am with them because I want to show them it's okay. So I oftentimes will be crying with them. So sometimes that will happen. But I'm also trying to talk to my DP and the wardrobe person in between all of this. So I have to be comfortable enough while I'm in this kind of broken spot with them to turn to my DP while I'm... All right, so let's grab the 85 and then when we go on this moment, but like not be... For years and years and years, I struggled with that um, position of like, oh, they're going to think I'm... Ugh, what a wuss. I had to like really learn to let that go. Um, it helps the entire room when you can embrace it and just be okay with it. It will, I feel like it will be imprinted on the DNA of the film. 
if you're okay with it. It'll help pull the audience in too. Uh, some people are much easier with that than others. I, I struggle with it for many, many years. Um, but uh, yeah. So Prince of Tides. Prince of Tides. It's a tough watch. Okay, I'll have to go back and look at that. So uh, it's an obscure one. It's funny that that's the one that pops into my mind as the first. But yeah, that, I remember watching that one. It's like, <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's a good movie. Directed by Barbara Streisand. And she's in it with Nick Nolte. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How many movies can you name off the top of your head that if you saw them today, they would make you cry? Oh, boy. Okay, off the top of my head. This is going to sound so funny. Jaws. And I'll tell you what, Jaws in the scene when the, the little boy is mimicking his dad. You know what scene I'm talking about? Where he's, he's having a tough day and, uh, and he's just sitting there thinking and the other boy's at the table and he's like imitating his father. And uh, he, he realizes his son is copying him and they're going back and forth doing all these. It's just, it's just a beautiful moment. And in the end, Roy Scheider leans over to the boy and says, Give me a kiss. And the kid goes, why? He goes, because I need it. Oh, that scene gets me every time. Um, you know, and I think it's de definitely like father-son scenes, like the second Guardians of the Galaxy movie when he wasn't, he may have been your daddy, but he, or he may have been your father, but he wasn't your daddy. Yondu, no! <laughs> oh, I'm just a mess when it, Anything that deals with father and son coming together and having this bond usually really gets me. Um, I, uh, ooh, off the top of my head. Um, oh man, I'm gonna think of it like, as soon as the camera stops and be like, oh, this one and this one and this one and this one. Um, a Coda, I just watched Coda, that one got me. That was, if you're familiar with it, it stands for Children of Deaf Adults and it's about a deaf family. And the daughter is can hear, the rest of the family cannot, and she wants to do music. It's a beautiful film, oh. beautiful film. Amelie gets me quite a bit. It's just this beautiful love story about her finding love, and it's just so, it's just such a wonderful film. Um, I'm sure I'll be able to think more later, but yeah, yeah. And I get more comfortable with it as I get older of just like being vulnerable to a lot of that stuff, but yeah. Does a director automatically deserve respect? <laughs> no. Um, I mean, you know, I think that the director automatically wants respect, but they don't necessarily deserve it. I think and when you see frustration from directors, it's because they don't have any respect and people are just walking all over them. That usually comes from a director that is not prepared or not... Uh, not prepared and just not doing the job that they're supposed to be doing. Um, it, they, sh they need respect. They should have respect because you're in charge of a, a, some, usually something larger, even if it's a smaller production, you know, you still got some money on the line. Um, but they, you got, you're, you're the person in the position of a pile of money. You have a, a target that you're aiming for at the end of it with some sort of story or something. Um, you have to dictate things to all these other departments. And if they don't have your respect, they are not going to be delivering their best work more than likely because if, if they don't like you, if, they're, if they don't, 
respect you or don't want to be there. They're going to probably just try to, they're just trying to power through the day. That's a really bad, that you don't want your team members in that position. Um, and I don't think that the, if you find yourself in that position, it's this is not necessarily because you have experience or not. That's not, usually doesn't have anything to do with it. It usually has to do with your preparation. Uh, directors who are not prepared really lose the respect of their crew very quickly because the worst possible thing you can do on set as a director is not know what you want. To sit there, the clock is ticking and you're going, should we put the, we should put the camera, so if we put the camera here and then, ah, it, it makes everyone crazy and they're gonna start rolling their eyes and being very frustrated with you. They're gonna start second guessing your decisions and things like that. Coming into your location beforehand and knowing they're gonna enter through this door and they're gonna go out through that door and I, I want to just move the camera this way. You don't have to know every little detail, but having an idea of what you want um, is super important. And you could do that without experience. And if you don't know how to, to even shoot a scene, you can get your DP to help you with that as long as you know what you want. That comes from preparation. Um, even having like an idea of, say for example, uh, wardrobe, you know, you want, I want it to look like this guy has been up all night. That can be enough of a description for your wardrobe person. At least now they know what you want. Okay, so he's, he slept in his clothes. Okay, good. And so a little bit of wrinkles in? Yeah, 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 you know, that kind of thing. If you came in and you're like, I don't know, he's just wearing like clothes like normal. That's maddening to work for. You're gonna lose the respect of everybody really quickly. So it's absolutely vital to have respect, but it's not, something that you will get just automatically. Um, but you can get it by making sure you're doing the work. So shot listing and storyboarding. Yep, shot listing, storyboarding is very helpful. Uh, you don't have to storyboard necessarily. There's a lot of schools of thought on that and it depends on the style that you're going for. Sometimes uh, you don't have time, you know, so, like, there's a show I've been working on where we're running so fast, there's not time for storyboards. There's not even time for a shot list, but at least um, knowing the basics even. Like I'm prepared as much as I can be in the moment. I know that these two characters are coming in and this is their objective and we have to get them back out and we have to do it in five minutes or less. So at least having some goalposts to hit at a minimum is helpful. The more you know, the better it is. And the easier it is for your team to work with you. What's your image of a bad director? Bad, you know, I've seen a lot of bad directors. I can picture them <laughs> in my mind. The, you know, the first, believe it or not, the first sign I see of a bad director is someone who doesn't know how to talk to an actor. I, I think, think about what it takes to be a director. You can do it. The best place for a director to be is like television. You can go into a television and uh, the DP already has set the look. The, the writers wrote everything for you. The actors know their characters and uh, you don't really have to do anything. But the, 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 the DP is probably going to be able to just set it up and, well, we normally shoot it when the guy goes over here and he cooks dinner there. This is normally how we shoot the scene. Okay, great. But the actors are still going to know what you want. So if you don't know how to talk to them and they're, and they're feeling 
alone and vulnerable, that, that's, that's a problem. Um, and that is the one job that no one can really help you with. Someone else can light it. Someone else can get all the costumes ready and the stunts and stuff. But someone's got to talk to the actors. Someone's got to give them emotions and, and help pull moments out of them. Uh, especially if they've shut down. Who else is going to do that for you? You, it's up to you. So um, th I, th there's no more important job than that, I think. How do you gut check yourself to know, hey, am I moving into bad director mode? Yeah, you know, if I feel like I'm in danger of being a bad director, <laughs> I'm just, I'm waiting for all the comments to appear below the video. Like, you are a bad director. If I feel like I'm, I'm edging into that territory, it always comes down to my prep. If I find myself, department heads are asking me, so um, what do you want for the color of the walls? And I haven't thought about that yet. Um, I know that, especially if we're approaching the shoot, that I know that there's a problem. And especially if there are gaps, like what I've noticed is, is what I was called bad directing, it's really easy to focus just on one aspect of the, of the shoot. Like, oh, it's going to be in this place all lit with Christmas lights. And and it's going to be shot on a steady cam, and we're going to just spin in a circle. Cool. So what are the actors doing? Like, oh, we'll figure that out when we get there. Uh, you, know, you haven't really thought about that department too much. Um, that's, a, that's, I, that's usually my gut going... Alarm bells, alarm bells. You know, you, you need to take a minute and sit and think about that. This comes back to a big thing I think we all struggle with, which is resistance. Uh, your gut, you inside know what you need to do to be successful. But sometimes, for whatever reason, boop, it comes up where you, you just don't want to. Um, you'll resist sitting down and writing out your shot list because it feels a lot like work. So I know that if I, if there are, there's usually that thing and sometimes it's shot lists and I like doing shot lists. That's what's so crazy. But if I feel like I haven't done it or see that I haven't done it and my alarm bells are going off inside, I'm definitely leaning into bad territory. And I feel it on set because there's always this little sense of inner panic that comes up where I don't know how to shoot this scene. I don't know what I'm, what I'm doing here. Uh, it's, it is a really uncomfortable bad spot to be in when it happens uh, because it's already hard enough on set. It's already, and you know, where else it comes up is where I think that I don't need to think about it. Whenever I approach a situation where oh, it's just another breakup scene, <sighs> we shot a bunch of these. It's just going to be in the ice cream shop. The two, they're going to leave. And I don't put the work in because I don't feel like I really need to. That's usually when things really go south too. Oh, the ice cream shop is closed and the, and the actor is allergic to dairy. Oh, um, oh, well, I don't know what to do. You know, that, cause that kind of thing will happen. It just happens all the time. So, which is why you prepare, which is why you do the work ahead of time. Be, you, you're preparing for Murphy. Cause Murphy will show up. He will. Make no mistake about it. That's why you prepare because Everything is going to go sideways on you at some point. It just will. So, 
Yeah. <laughs> You've brought up resistance a lot. Are you a fan of the War of Art? Yes. Stephen no, Pressfield? I, the War of Art. Yes, because that's how it starts, right? He talks about resistance. That, that really rung my bell when he talked about that. Like, because you, the thing about resistance that's so sinister is that no one else can tell. You, it, we can, we're really good at making ourselves look busy, even to our partners or on social media. But we know if we're resisting. We're the only ones who know, generally, you know. If you're supposed, to, if you know that you have that screenplay that you're supposed to be writing and you just aren't, no one's, your partner may be looking at you and be like, oh, he works on it every day. But is he though? Am I though? You know, we, we only we know it. And so it's, uh, yeah, it and, it, and it can look like all sorts of things. It can look like, it can look like uh, exercise. Uh, every time I sit down to write that, oh, I just need to go for a walk. Well, guess what you're not doing while you're walking, you're not writing. It could look like, I think he even says in the book, it could be sex, could be a resistance thing. You know, you just, <laughs> suddenly I'm really horny, boop. Um, yeah, it could, it, it, for every person is different. Social media is probably the biggest resistance uh, blocker, which is, you know, and social media is a killer for art. It's killer. It does you no favors whatsoever. It's, there really isn't any purpose to it, especially for artists. Like, what are you doing? If, like, what do we really need it for? You know, how is it actually helping your career? We like to, we like to kid ourselves and tell us that, oh, well, people need to know that I'm busy. <laughs> do they though? <laughs> like, how many jobs have we legitimately gotten from Facebook? I mean, unless you're in part of a Facebook group that posts a job and you happen to be one of the first five that do it and they're looking for an art department person. I, I can't think of it. I, people will message me and say, it looks like you're busy, but I've never landed a job from one of those social media platforms. It's all about the grand advertisement to show people that you're more important than you are. That's usually the point of social media is, yeah. Isn't that the point of everything? To, to advertise to the world that you're more successful, more good looking, more that your life is so great and perfect, probably. Isn't that yeah. what we do as humans? Yeah, we just want to fool everyone into thinking that we're something. Yeah. For any new filmmakers watching, can you take us through the process of making a film all the way from getting financing to getting uh, cast attached, below the line people working, all of this? Yeah. Yeah, if we're talking about making a like a movie specifically, that's what you mean. Like, actually, yeah. So, um, the general process of making the movie is, you know, of course, it starts with a script. Got to get a script from somewhere. Um, hopefully, find financing in some way, shape, or form. But whether that's an investor or credit cards or something. Usually, at that point, then you find casting. Then it becomes, you know putting your crew together, probably starting with someone like a cinematographer, deciding to look, the props, you move into production, and you're doing that whole scene, and then, then it's post on the end of it. That's the general building blocks, which are probably fairly obvious. The trick is how do you do, I mean, how do you, if, you're, if you've never done it, like how do you even move that ball down the field at all? Um, that's usually the big question. How do we make a movie? How do you get, in the world do you do it? I've done three features to this point and 
Each one of them came about in different ways. The first one, so actually the first one I ever tried to make, I, I did everything you were supposed to do. I read all the books. I read Rebel Without a Crew. I did, I read, you know, all the books that all the filmmakers read about independent film and whatever. I wrote a script. My mom told me it was really great. <laughs> and <laughs> all my friends told me how great it was. I found an investor, a guy who helped me with a business plan, but he was only willing to invest in the trailer. He didn't have enough money to actually fund the whole film, but he knew business. Cool. That's something I lack. So we wrote a, we did a killer trailer. We set out to raise money. Everybody told me you have never made a feature. So how, and I was trying to raise like a million bucks. I think I was sorry budget. Every investor said, this is a high risk investment and you've never made a movie. So how am I, how do I know I'm ever going to see it again? And how do I know you know what you're doing? I heard that over and over and over again for several years before I finally gave up. It was so demoralizing because actually the trailer we made was good. We thought for sure people would be into it. Didn't work. Didn't work at all. It was not what the books told me that would happen. It was not, it was very frustrating. So here I am back at square one. Got this cool movie trailer, yay, for a film that doesn't exist. Okay, so I had to go back to the drawing board and go, all right, so then how do I make a movie? How do I get this thing made? So I, I wrote a different script. And I wrote this script based on things that I knew I had access to. So I shoot a lot of underwater stuff, all right. I can, I can maybe add some of that. I wouldn't recommend that in an independent feature film. I did it anyway. Um, wrote this little murder mystery thing. I set out to raise $40,000. $40,000. Uh, you know, I was thinking before I could, you know, I thought to myself, I've shot a lot on my camera. You know, I've shot, a, I have a lot of experience behind the camera. I had tried to teach myself as much as I could about filmmaking. I'd worked with another director a whole bunch and he showed me how five C stands and a couple of flags and a little light kit can really do a lot for you. So I'm like, and I learned a lot from him. He taught me all this great stuff. So I bought, I literally bought five C stands, handful of flags, had a light kit. That's it, that's all I had. Doorway dolly, little bit of track, and okay, I can I can make a movie with just these few elements. I'll cast my friends as the actors. I'm gonna raise 40 grand. I couldn't raise 40 grand. I raised 12. And you know, all the people that threw in was fantastic. They were all good friends of mine, but that still left me in this place of like, man, how am I supposed to pull this off without anything? I decided, well, I'm gonna take that money and use it for catering and for the couple of rentals that I need, and I'm gonna do it anyway. So I sat out and shot for five straight weeks. Um, I shot it during, this is, this is really helpful. The people I cast, the first one was an actor who was in acting school. He was on his Christmas break for a month. So he was actually home for a month that I could grab him for. That was very helpful. Um, I did not break the shoot up into tiny pieces like a lot of people do because that gets really dangerous because your actors, you know, someone's going to get married, someone's going to get a haircut. 
you know, trying to coordinate people for months and months and months on end is it's increasingly difficult to do. So I tried to shoot it all in one block just to get it knocked out and get it out of the way. So um, over Christmas time was a great time. Work is slow, gear is available, sometimes crew is available. That made everything exponentially easier. Um, I paid everybody with food. Had a friend do the cake. We, we, we came up with this little, and, I, and by the way, everything, we had a crew of five. Every, all the lighting fit in my SUV. And the, I had this little Tupperware container with um, you know, napkins, forks and knives, salt and pepper, things like that, that the, this uh, friend of mine was kind of helping us cater. And she would fill that up and had all the crafty in it. And I could just pull it out and wheel it to set. And she would bring like a casserole or something every morning. It was a great little system. She wasn't there all day, but it was something so that the crew was taken care of. And uh, I planned like I've never planned before. Like I, I went and looked at each location. I measured each room to make sure that the, because I wanted to know if I want to do a doorway dolly shot through this little doorway, is it even wide enough for me to do that? So I measured it to make sure it was right and then pre-planned out where all my shots would be so that I could be a military operation in every single location because I did not have the money to, to be able to do extra reshoots and things like that. So I had this giant three ring binder like this that with every little detail of every scene, which scene came before, which scene came after, so that I could meet, because I didn't have a scripty. I had myself, I was DP, I had three film students, and I had a art department person and a stunt coordinator. Like those were, that was it, that's all I had. So I needed to be able to create a system to where I could do it all myself. Um, and I did it, I pulled it off. Now I will say, it was one of the most exhausting experiences of my life. Um, it, I actually put myself in the hospital from exhaustion. I ended up passing out in the shower, um, but I did it. I got it done. And sometimes making your first feature will take that to, you'll have, you may, hopefully not, you may have to push yourself further than you ever thought possible. But if you want it, this might be what you have to do. Push yourself so much further than you thought. And it wasn't like I had this great day job gig where I could afford to take all this time off. I couldn't. I was living on credit cards and I had to push and push and push. Now here's the thing. That film, it's, you can watch it if you want. It's a $12,000 movie. It's never going to be, it, it's a 12, it looks like a, and sounds like a $12,000 movie and it's not anything great. You can, it's on Amazon. It's called The Human Trace. You can watch it if you want. Watch it only to inspire you to make something better. Um, I would also tell you at the same time, go watch Christopher Nolan's Following. It was shot for like six grand. So, but because Christopher Nolan made Following, he got to make Memento right? Sometimes it takes that first one to get you out the door. And if no one is giving you a shot, you're just going to have to figure out how to give it to yourself. That's what I had to do. And it took everything I had to make it happen. But I will tell you that after, you know, 25 years later, it is the, my most proudest accomplishment because I did it on my own and I did it and I made it happen. It won a couple of awards, did okay in the fact It was never sold for a lot of money. It didn't do, you know, you're, we're all hoping, we're all hoping that when we do it, that that's going to be the thing that opens the door. Don't count on that. It 
probably won't. Hey, if it happens for you, that's fantastic. But be careful what how you pin your hopes on, on that one project. And I learned that in the biggest way on film number two. So, so film number one was done the true indie filmmaker way, which was blood, sweat, and tears, doing everything yourself, you know, all of that. Um, even to the point, I, we recorded like all the underwater sounds by taking a microphone and putting a condom around it and dipping it in a swimming pool and then making underwater sounds and did all the sound design like that. Like it was, it was interesting. Safe recording. That, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no one got pregnant. Um, uh, so that's one way that you can do it. And I will say that the process of that, now the film itself did not open doors. However, from that point forward, I could tell people that I made a movie. They're not gonna watch this movie. That doesn't matter. I could tell people that I made the movie. That did help when it came to the second one because I was able to tell people I've done this before. I've been through this mill before. I know how to make a two hour story and make it hold together. The second film was done, was paid for by an, a large organization that they wanted to dramatize a book. So this is an interesting, now this is another way you can make films happen. And I've seen people do this because they will take a story and wrap it around a cause. If you can attach your story to say a book, like in the case of this, it was a, a book they wanted to dramatize, or you can come up with a cause, say, I don't know, voting rights or ending childhood hunger or something, right? There are organizations that really you know, they're champions of this and, and massive organizations that are around that fight this kind of thing. And you can get them to partner with you. You will also have a built-in audience. It's a great way to get a film going if, if, if your film has some sort of bent like that. It'll give you a platform, access to investors and things like that. Cool, that's fantastic. And also is, it feels good when you get out of bed in the morning because you're making a film that's actually doing good like this. So my next film was like that. What that means is, that means two things. I'm working for a client. That's different than your own little film. This is gonna be more like what it was like working in a studio. And I'm also making a film based on pre-existing material. So I'm adapting a book for a client. So that means that I have to work with a committee of people who are dictating the story and they're telling me things they want in it, certain agendas that they have. That is a that is what you will run into when you do a, a film for an organization. This is it's not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a very collaborative feeling. In this case, it was a very positive creative experience. Uh, the the executive producer and myself are very good friends to this day. We're still working together. Um, we made this film. It's called The Record Keeper. It, it was a wonderful experience to make. It's a steampunk sci-fi thriller about angels and all that. It was super, super fun. But the organization decided at the end of it not to release it. And it's a whole long sort of story as to why, but this taught me lesson number two, which is when you tie your hopes to what your project can do or will do, 
it's a dangerous place to be. It's, it's, some people refer to that as living in the future. You are, I, I, I wish I could remember which sports team this was, but I know there's a famous story about a football team that was, that was playing this game and this one team thought they had won it. And I think there was an interception or a tackle or something and team A, ah, oh, that's it, we won the game. And the fans started flooding the, the stadium and things like that but the play wasn't over. And the other team somehow grabbed the ball, picked it up and run it to the other end zone. And it was discovered somehow in this crazy celebration that they actually lost. Viewers may remember what this story is. I can't quite remember what it is off the top of my head, but that, that this is actually something that happened. This is an example of a team that got so focused on the future of winning X, going to film festival, winning, winning Sundance, that they completely lost sight of where they actually were. And that was a very devastating lesson for me to learn, which was we made this film, we were winning awards, people were so excited, we were on set, you could feel the magic in the air as we were creating it, we're working with actors, the story was really cool. We felt like we were on this launching pad. And all of a sudden, we go launching into the stratosphere and the organization says, no. And I took a tumble off of that into a very dark place to the point where I almost gave up making films. It was so hard because you, we work so hard to get through, you, to break through, right? You're just trying every step of the way to write the screenplays, to work with the actors, and then finally someone gives you a shot and then they bam, they shut the door on your face. It felt like, well, then what's the point? You know, it just, it, I seriously thought about, my wife and I talked at length about maybe we should just go teach English in Korea or something and, and just give up. Uh, it was because I was pinning my hopes on what it, I thought it was gonna do up here. Uh, and I lost sight of where, the reality of where it actually was, realizing this is a very real possibility. This, the signs were there going along that this could happen, but I just didn't want to see it. I just believed that it would do better than that. So I recovered from that whole experience, which took some time, took a lot of licking of the wounds. And eventually down the line, I got back on my feet I ended up at this, for a time I worked, I did, I ended up getting a job. It was a way that I, I, I got to LA. And this is something very interesting because I feel like the second film that I did, if I had lived in LA, things would have turned out differently because my friend circle would have been different. Well, I was living in another city and the people that I was surrounded by and people making movies, the, the artists involved were just from that city. If I had been in LA making this with LA people, I think other, it would have been higher exposure. I think the results would have been different. That's as a side note. So after all this went down, it was also financially devastating. So I had to find a way to get to LA after all of this, after this huge wound and, and, and all right, now I need, I need to get down there and try to figure out a way to make this happen. So I ended up taking a full-time job, which was, very that you know after going whoop I want to be I'm going to be famous ah <laughs> I'm going to work a full-time job at a job I hate 
I'm the world's worst person, right? So boom, so I'm in this full-time job. But, but while I was in this job, first of all, I gave myself a time limit. I'm, not, I'm only going to be here for a year. This is just to get me to LA. So I, I did that. And while I was in the job, I thought, okay, I, got, I need to get film number three off the ground. I can't let this second experience be the death of me. I can't let that be the defining moment of my life. So I went to the Austin Film Festival and I met Dwayne Worrell there and we connected and I followed up with him. This is the traditional way how movies are supposed to be made, right? So... We get back to LA, we became fast friends. He sends me the script. I couldn't put it down. I love the script so much. I asked him if it was okay if I pitched it around. He said yes. I went to another film festival, connected with these other group of producers, came back, pitched it to them. They said, that's great, that's a green light. Now this is the traditional way of how you want it to happen in Hollywood, right? So these are three different possible ways of how films get made. Is any of them right or wrong? Absolutely not. Um, but it's just a way of demonstrating and how this actually happens. Um, the third way I will say is has been the most interesting because I'm working for a production house who's done multiple films. There's a great comfort in that because they have had things distributed way more than I have. They have done, they, they understand the ins and outs of the other side of the business that I'm not as familiar with. Um, that's fantastic. There's also a great, because I'm in LA, I have a great network of filmmakers to choose from to help me make this thing. That's also a huge asset. Uh, it's given us access to film festivals um, that I didn't have before. So there's enormous value in going after a film like that, uh, in that way. Now, the film is about to release at the time of this recording, so we will see how this particular process goes, but, um, you know, it, so how is a film made? It's, it's in any way that you possibly can. It's you, you, I had to put myself in the hospital, to make the first one. I had to take a job. I hated for the third and all of them were worth it because once you're there and you're doing it, it is the, the dream that we've all striven for, it's real, it's magic, it's, it's fantastic, it's the best job in the world.